Welcome back to Composite Two Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast where a couple of one star hosts talk about five, four, and three star prospects and everything in between. I'm your one star host, Chris Trevino. And as always, I'm joined by my podcasting partner in crime who goes by many names. Some know him as Hurricane, Troy Annenberg, Gerard, Gerald, the goat, whatever you want to call him. He's here. Gerard, all I can say is. We're back! And I mean that in a very real sense, Gerard, because we're actually here. We're recording live. Not in the we're back in the sense of Texas when it wasn't really. We're here. It's reality. How are you feeling and how are you doing after a week off? (laughs) I was going to say, hopefully that's about us specifically and only because uh, we're not going to get into the we're back stuff until uh, USC is... uh, no, it's about us. Straight, it's about us. Their second straight national title. I know, but people can get confused with the, the we're back thing. You know, it, like you said, with Texas, it seems like Texas is back until they're not back. So uh, I don't remember when Texas was really um, there to be back uh, necessarily. Kind of like, um, you know, USC was uh, going for three straight national titles. Alabama's obviously numerous national titles. Ohio State's been the college fo- football playoff. Numerous years. I'm kind of thinking, when did Texas have this run to be <laughs> to be back to? I know they had a couple nice years there. You know, they had the year obviously with Vince Young, and and they were you know kind of kicking the tires a little bit on uh, some national championship runs here and there from that point on. But it was a it was a pretty small window. So everybody always talks about you know is Texas back, and I'm kind of kind of remembering how many national title runs they've made and how many national titles they won in a row to actually make that claim to begin with. So. Yeah, uh, we're back as far as we took the week off last week, and uh, now we're back during the bye week. So we have some things to uh, to review from the last two weeks. Really, unfortunately, not a whole lot happened last week. We took the week off because there really wasn't a lot going on, and you and I were both backlogged on a lot of content. So it's like, okay, let's get the target list set up. Let's get some of these interviews up. I had ISO tape from a few different players um, that some of our interns and some of our writers had shot so i needed to edit that and put that up and we get into this week and you know there's a little bit of bad news at the top of the show but in general not a whole lot going on right now but some stuff is going on and that's enough for us to turn that into a four-hour show gerard that is enough (laughs) all we need is a little strand and we will pull that sucker until it's a pile of rope in front of us and very quickly before we get into what we're going to talk about today we have some allegations to address at the top of the show know that is not the cold open but we do have some allegations that someone made on twitter that we are the reason that usc lost in utah because the week we do not do a podcast is the week that their undefeated season comes to an end how do you respond to this how should we respond to this you know if we only had that power (laughs) we only had that power it'd be interesting to see how long each podcast is and what the margin of victory is for USC that mm. week. That would that would be interesting if uh, there was something to that mathematically. That would be a little scary. Uh, I think you and I, um, you know, we would we would see that 24-hour stream come a little sooner than expected if uh, there was actually some correlation there with uh, the, the butterfly effect or the universe somehow um, being affected by us sitting here rambling on about uh, recruiting. Look, I'm just telling you, Gerard, they're getting more serious about the 24-hour stream. That's all I want to say, that it's becoming a real thing that we might 
find ourselves doing in a couple months. I just need you to prepare for that mentally. I'm trying to prepare for that mentally because it is picking up steam everywhere I go. Yeah, but the difference between you and I is I don't uh, succumb to peer pressure. So <laughs> you got a tattoo because of peer pressure, although you brought that on yourself. I don't care. I, if we have a 24-hour stream, it's because we want to have a 24-hour stream. We feel like it's going to actually be decent content. I don't know how good of content you can have for 24 straight hours when it comes to what we do. Again, it's a little different than an actual gaming stream, but nevertheless, uh, if we do it, we do it. But nobody's going to force us or influence They'll us. Force They'll force me. They'll force me. Force me. They, they in parentheses. <laughs> the filthy casuals, the rabid fan base we've created with the composite two-star recruits. The two-star recruiters. I'm trying to think of like a name for them, you know, like a catchy name. I don't have it yet. You have. Oh, so like, you know, like the army or the nation or whatever. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to think about that one. But yeah, hopefully converting just to, you know, if we just convert a handful of filthy casuals in a season, that's a big win for us, in my opinion. We can flip like 10. I think we did one. We already have one. Someone's on record that we flipped them, the signing up. So we got one. That's our quota for the, the whole year. So exciting times. And let's get into a show because people did not have their show last week. So they're just hopped up for, for some recruiting stuff. So, you know, as Gerard said, not a super stack show, but we will make it, we will find a way to make it at least two hours. As Gerard said, we have a deep commitment to talk about talking about Friday night lights from last week. Uh, two weeks ago, the week we did not go, we had some big uh, rankings updates for USC commits and some drop, but a lot of them rose and we want to talk about those. We have Gerard's target list to break down. We have a recruiting angle for USC's first loss of the season. We've got a big Friday night schedule to talk about. And then we have a bunch of listener questions. But before we get into all that, I need to take a second to thank the official sponsor of the Composite Two-Star Recruits, Meredith Schlosser, the top SoCal Los Angeles real estate agent. It's number one. She's the GOAT and she's five-star. And I just want to take a moment because I'm not reading off anything right now. I just need to say I mentioned before in my reads before that I've been working with Meredith and her team. Shout out to Jeremy Hensley, who has been the guy. I am a client of Meredith Schlosser and her, her organization. And I got a house. They got me a house to rent, Gerard. It's been wow, a long, stressful process, but we got it done. We just have one more thing to sign. So this is not just me coming as someone who is part of their sponsorship, but as a client, a satisfied client, that they are the real deal and they are the best. She's She has over $600 million in sales and more than 200 five-star Zillow reviews. She's worked with everyone from, you know, Jeannie Buss to a recent USC grad. She does it all. She's backed by a full-service team that allows her to service a wide range of clients from for rentals, sales, and purchases she also has extensive experience with first-time home buyers. She was recently recognized by Wall Street Journal within the top 1.5% of agents in the nation. That is in the nation, Gerard. You can learn more about Meredith and her team at www.meredithschlosser.com. That is S-C-H-L-O-S-S-E-R. And you can check out her business Instagram at Meredith Real Estate. So thank you again to Meredith Schlosser and her team for being the official sponsor of Composite Two-Star Recruits. Now, Gerard, I dropped a new sound at the top of the show. 
I have four new sounds that I have, including that one I just used. And I'm not telling you what they are. We're just going to have them go throughout the show. Okay? We took a week off, so I brought some new stuff for the show. I think that's a fair compromise for the listeners. What do you think? Sure. But eventually, we have to get to the show. So, yeah, lead us in there. Lead us in there. Pull the Band-Aid off. Pull the Band-Aid off. Yeah, that's you. That's me? Yeah, that's you. I have you. to pull the up. I'm the one who has to talk about long. You gave calling. the bad news last week about not doing a show. You, goddammit, do the bad news right now for the cold open. Do it. All right, settle down, settle down, settle down. Long Beach Poly, 2024 junior linebacker, four-star Dylan Williams, decommit from USC this week. And a bit of a surprise. Uh, this much. is definitely something that, talking to my sources and just me specifically, of all of the different commitments that they have in the 2023, 2024, and even the 2025 class where you've got Aaron White, quote, unquote, Jet White, I really did not think Dylan Williams would be a decommit out of those lists. He was probably at the very bottom yeah. of guys that I would say, yeah, he's going to decommit from the Trojans 2024 class. So this is, you know, uh, Semi-significant for USC. Obviously, it's 2024. USC can continue to recruit him. He says that USC is still at the top of his list. He's still considering USC. Has a great relationship with the coaching staff. I think a lot of the scholarship offers that he's been getting lately, I think there's been a little bit of influence around him saying, hey, listen, you're probably going to be more of a commodity if people look at you as an uncommitted recruit as opposed to locked in with USC. If you look locked into USC, then some schools are not going to bother to give you a scholarship offer or try to get you in on a visit. So why don't you reopen your commitment and look around a little bit and maybe, you know, with NIL and everything else that comes along with it, you become a little bit more of a commodity. Now, that's me speculating to some extent. Greg Biggins, national recruiting analyst for 24-7 Sports, did talk to Dylan Williams and actually quoted him specifically saying that, you know, he wanted to take some visits. He wanted to look around and he felt, I guess it was a bit disingenuous to be committed to USC when he was still looking at other schools. So that's the the official uh, statement from Dylan uh, going forward. Uh, he just had visited USC unofficially uh, a few weeks ago. He was down there with Sam Green on their unofficial visit, took some photos. Uh, a lot of people actually were confused thinking that Sam Green was actually there with uh, Deshaun Womack, the four-star defensive lineman from St. Francis, but that was actually Dylan Williams, number two, who he was taking those photos with. So this definitely came from left field. And everybody I talked to, I think even the coaching staff was pretty surprised by this happening. Again, it's not necessarily the end of the world because they have a lot of time to recruit him, and it seems like USC is in a good position to recruit him. But nevertheless, uh, he is now decommitted. So USC, they just got to continue to work on him and try to bring him back into the committee class. Six foot two and a half. And as someone who has seen him twice this season, I would say that's closer to six foot three than anything. Maybe six foot three and a half. Uh, 200 pounds. That I feel like is also underweight from when we last updated his profile. But number 232 nationally in the 24-7 sports rankings. Number 14 linebacker. Number 141 overall and the number 11 linebacker in the 24-7 sports composite. So, and we've mentioned this before, Gerard, when, you know, I've, I've been to poly games, we talk about it in our Friday Night Lights, talking about, you know, Dylan Williams and his his play out there, but he's a dude. Like, you look at him and you're like, okay, that's the guy. He's the guy leading the defense out, and he's always been super 
pro USC. He's always rocking the gloves. He's always rocking the sleeves. When he's at games, he's got the USC gear on. He has those nice Nike uh, uh, red and gold color wave sneakers. So he's always been super USC. And every time you talk to him, it's always USC, USC, USC. So, yeah, kind of out of left field. But we have mentioned in talking about him that this guy is a dude and he's going to be a national prospect. It's not USC's beating out some of the top teams in the on the West Coast. It's has to beat out SEC programs, Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, Florida, Ohio State. Those are the caliber of offers that Dylan Williams is going to get and the caliber of schools that are going to be looking at him. So he is a national guy, and I expect his rankings to shoot up the next time they update it for 2024 because he is looks like a legit guy, plays like a legit guy at times. So we knew that he was going to get some some major attention from big-time Power 5 programs. And USC got in there early to get that commitment, but his recruiting process is just starting. You know, coaches could officially really start to talk to 2024 guys earlier this fall, and he's gotten a lot of attention, and he's going to continue to get a lot of attention. I think he just really wants to ride this recruiting process right now. Yeah, Georgia, Oregon, uh, a few offers just lately. And so I think that was really more uh, of the push. Again, I think people around him more than just him, because, you know, we always talk about Mm -hmm. actions being louder than words with recruiting. And in this particular case, I mean, Williams' actions were all USC. He'd been to a bunch of games, like you said, always rocking the USC gear, always on Twitter, subtweeting, throwing fight-ons. He certainly seemed the part. He was one of the few committed recruits that actually camped with USC over the summer. Uh, Most of the 2024 and 2023 class were not on campus at any of those camps. Um, They had more commitments and I think more targets at the seven-on-seven tournament at USC than they had at any of the elite camps. So, you know, this is one of those (laughs) situations where actions didn't speak louder than words. Uh, You know, the words uh, sort of were quiet and then boom, it kind of came out of left field. Uh, But again, you know, I think he's going to be there for USC. And a lot of people will look at the Utah game and say, oh, look at the defense. It's not playing well enough. You give up 43 points, et cetera, et cetera. I don't really think this had anything to do with it. Obviously, the optics are not good because the chicken littles, the people that are looking for that chink in the armor will start to go, oh, my gosh, you know, this is what you get when you don't tackle and blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Uh, It just was bad timing in terms of the decommitment, but I really don't think it aligned too much uh, with that. I had some sources originally when the news first broke tell me that, you know, he didn't have the greatest relationship with the USC staff and he didn't feel like he was a priority. I personally have never, ever gotten that vibe from Dylan Williams. He's been pretty open throughout the process with both of us. We both talked to him a bunch Mm -hmm. and that's the exact opposite. And what he told Greg Biggins on the record was the exact opposite, that he does have a good relationship with both Dante Williams, who originally recruited him when Dante Williams was an interim head coach. That's when they got him committed or excuse me, that's not when they got him committed, but that's when they offered him a scholarship and really made their original push for him. And then he hung out a bunch with Brian Odom during the camp. And Brian Odom really spent a lot of time sort of on the side with him going through different drills and just, you know, kind of talking him up and trying to build that relationship. So I don't think that's really true. I think this is really a little more of a, you know, you're a hotter commodity, um, particularly with NIL and what have you. And I don't necessarily know how true that is so much as uh, it's the perception. And I think this is interesting because you could see a little bit of a turn in terms of having a lot of these recruits committing early 
I think that could actually be something that changes the game a little bit where now you actually have deals and what have you that are out there based upon branding. And everybody knows that you, if you're, if you're considering 16 schools, you know, coming in at the end of your junior year, you're going to have probably have a lot more Twitter followers and a lot more Instagram followers. And you see kids even now, um, they, they'll throw fight on out there just to get some interactions on Twitter. You know, they'll put a, a vol, you know, go vols or whatever the heck they say, you know, Hey, Alabama fans, follow me on Instagram. Give me me the 10k baby. I'll get a tattoo. That's yeah. So you know all about it, Chris. Uh, I know all about it, baby. I know the play. It's just not not a sponsorship. He's a client of this. So yeah, um, it's one of those things where I think a little bit of that is is gonna go on, and it'll be interesting to see again if you have you know the same amount of summer commitments uh, going through the process. Uh, certainly, the same amount of early commitments that go to the process. We might see things in the recruiting process sort of revert to you know pre-2010 2011 where all of a sudden now you know more guys are going to actually wait towards signing day and we've seen quite a few kids it seems like the kids out in the northwest up in uh, brandon huffman land are the guys that always wait beyond even february signing period right. maybe that becomes a little more of a trend as these kids try to get as much engagement as much brand name as possible and then maybe they can you know turn that into some type of nil deal and just a quick look at how the 2024 class looks now, now that Dylan Williams has decommitted. You still have all, you still have three commitments, all four-star prospects. Jason Robinson, uh, Long Beach Poly teammate, uh, 5'10 wide receiver, number 258 in the composite. Joey Olson, uh, the 6'5 tight end out of Oregon, who was the most recent 2024 commit, number 195 in the composite. And then Aaron Butler, the, the jewel of the class right now, top 100 prospect, number 81 overall athlete, six foot one. The first a commitment for Lincoln Riley, I believe that is regardless of any class or transfer portal or anything. He is the first commitment to jump on the Lincoln Riley uh, wagon. And he's been a guy who has taken lots of visits, Gerard, all over the country. And there were times we didn't hear from him from a long time. And and then he shows up at USC games. So he is an interesting one to keep an eye on. But for right now, USC's class number eight in the country. And that's where it stands. Aaron Butler, Joey Olson, and Jason Robinson. I know, would bet, excuse me. I, I would say I would bet money a month ago, I mean a week ago, that any of those three guys would be decommitted before right. Dylan Williams. Of that group, Dylan Williams seemed like by far the most committed. Mm-hmm. We talked about Jason Robinson over the summer because he really wasn't in a lot of communication with USC. We thought, okay, maybe something's going to go on there. Maybe he could decommit. Joey Olson, who you know everybody thought was going to go to Oregon and comes out of left field and commits to USC. Uh, and then Aaron Butler, like you said, had been on a bunch of visits already and a, a guy that you think, okay, you know, he could be a, a, a player that maybe decides because he's been around and he wants to take more visits that it would be better for him to be decommitted. So yeah, it's um, uh, that group that's committed right now. I would have definitely bet uh, would be wavering more than Dylan Williams was. So, I mean, there, there you go. You know, that's uh, that's modern day recruiting. You know, sometimes you see it coming and then there are other times there are surprises. still. And just to note something that you said earlier about Dylan Williams, you know, being close with the staff and going against what some of your, in uh, early sourcing had said right when it happened i you said i talked to him i did i talked i did talk to him about you know who he talks to and it was like dante williams and he 
most of the kids I talk to always say they talk to everybody on the staff. I feel like that's kind of a difference with this staff between previous staff is that everybody's in on recruiting everybody. It seems you have your your lead guy, your main guy, but you know Alex Winch is stepping in there. Everyone just seems to talk to everybody on the staff and get a full connection with everyone across the staff, not just one guy or two guys. So yeah, that was kind of what was coming out of his mouth that he was not only talking to Dante, but Odom as well and, and everyone on the staff. So did not seem like he did not have any connection with the staff. So I don't, I don't really understand that. But again, it's 2024. Don't, don't step back from the ledge. It's okay. Still a lot of time. USC is going to be a big factor with him going down the pipeline with his recruitment. Gerard, anything maybe, else you want maybe, maybe some some more room tidbits to follow up on this? Maybe maybe some more room tidbits to follow on. And I just want to confirm that yes, Dylan Williams did receive a a offer from the University of Maryland 7 days before he decommitted, but I had nothing to do with it. I had nothing to do with it. I just want that on record that I had nothing to do with it. Now, Gerard, anything else you want to talk about with Dylan Williams before we move on to our next section? No, we can move on. Okay. Now, we're going into our Friday Night Lights. That means you haven't known the triumphs and defeats, the epic highs and lows of high school football, but you will. Yes, you will, Gerard. I did not cover a high school football game uh, this past weekend because I was in Salt Lake City. You did. We had some people out at some different places. So why don't you kind of kick us off with this? Yeah, we hit uh, a few different games, and the game that I went to was – to see our boy Christian Pierce once again. To see, when is he going to get that four-star? Now, I will say at the front of this, I love Christian Pierce because he's never, ever once even brought up his ranking to me. Not once. There you of go. All the players out there that we talk to, uh, very rarely do you have a player, certainly of his caliber, that is a three-star that doesn't, at some point say, you know, I'm just playing, trying to get that four star, you know, I'm just trying to, you know, get that bump in the rankings, wink, nod, something along the lines uh, when you're talking to them and interviewing them. And Christian Pierce has never made any mention of this. So hats off to him for that. You know, we've never had a conversation about his ranking. I've always felt pretty steadfast that he is a four star. Uh, I think he's got the size, the length, the speed, and, you know, the composure and the intangibles as a leader for that Ranch Kikamunga defense. And I just like the total package of Christian Pierce. So they win uh, 42-0 over Chino Hills. Um, it was actually Thursday game. Um, he ends up having to pick six. You know, he has that dream play of every defensive back, and he's been looking forward to this. I mean, we actually talked about him trying to bring back some of these interceptions that he had last year. He had nine interceptions last year for Ranch Cucamonga. He's only had, I think, three this season, two or three this season. Clearly, teams not throwing anywhere near him. They do move him all over the place on that defense. He plays over the slot. He plays in the box almost as a quasi-linebacker, and he plays single high a lot. But most of these teams, he's playing up near the box. He's taking away the RPO. And in this game, he, uh, he, he had a sack, and he had a couple of good tackles. But he also had a play where he was looking at the RPO, and I, I, he almost juked me out of the frame because he made a move inside like he was going to collapse on the edge. And at the last minute, he kind of stuck his paw out there and the ball was going to the slot receiver and he put it out there and he got a deflection. He caught it. He ran, you know, right to me, <laughs> gave the fight on and got his first pick six. So it was pretty cool. Uh, 
It and weren't was, you complaining that you didn't have any footage and then that happened? Yeah, well, at halftime, I really didn't have a whole lot of great footage of him. And, and I think you last, called me. I think you called me. I text. Well, no, we were, I don't know what, we were talking about something else, but I, yeah, I probably had mentioned that, you know, it didn't really, it wasn't a lot going on in the game. You know, Ranch Cucamonga did just a good job of, of running the football and just playing pretty fundamentally sound football. And uh, Chino Hills just did a terrible field position the whole night. And, you know, they were stifling the Huskies. And then halftime, they got a little more aggressive and they started putting Christian Pierce up to line scrimmage. You know, he was rushing the punter. He was rushing the passer. And then, you know, you had that big play. So it was uh, it was good. You know, last time I filmed Christian Pierce, I actually filmed two games back to back, the Servite game and the Apple Valley game, just because we didn't have a lot of footage. And this is something that we've uh, you know, we had gripes about here on, on the Peristyle. And I think it's just new members and new posters and they're jumping on the, the Lincoln Riley bandwagon. They don't understand the difference between highlights and isolation film. Highlights are what you get on huddle. They're a culmination of the best plays from a given game. And sometimes it's just a high school football game. And if you've got a notable player, a USC commit, a guy that's a four-star, five-star, what have you, and he's not in a position where you you sort of have to go at him, uh, and this is particularly, you know, it, it's very much a defensive player issue uh, when you're filming because the offense can just go in the other direction. And if you don't got a bunch of division one guys where you, you kind of have to pick your poison, you can just run to the other side of the field. You can just throw the ball to the other side of the field. So people are like, well, this isn't really highlights. Just, you know, I'm not really seeing anything folks. This is a, an evaluation of sorts. This is film that you can actually look at this football player away from the ball. You can see what they do on plays that are that look at face value as ordinary plays, but they make a play that helps their team actually make a tackle or maybe make a sack. There's a lot of nuance to these videos, and it's something that you don't get elsewhere. So that's why we shoot them like that. That's why we look at every single play that player did uh, in that particular night. And so um, in this case, you did have a couple big highlights. You had a nice sack, and obviously the pick six is a great highlight. Uh, but there is other – you know, video that we've put up and it's not necessarily been like flashy or what have you, but it's not meant to be flashy. You know, it's, it's not, we're shooting the high school football game and just shooting every touchdown that, you know, that's obviously something different under the radar does that, but I, we know UFC fans and we know that Trojan fans want to see the Trojan commits and the Trojan targets. They don't really care about the high school football games. We used to just do overviews of high school football games and nobody read them. Nobody cared. They want to know who the next Reggie Bush is. They want to know who the next Matt Leinard is. Who's going to be the next uh, Leonard Williams. So uh, that's why we focus on the targets and the commits. And in this particular case, you know, Christian Pierce had a, had a nice game. So um, it was uh, cool to see that I, I can, you know, people always ask me when he's getting his four star, when he's getting his four star, I don't give stars out. I don't really care about but stars. Holding it, Gerard. Just give it to him. <laughs> but he's definitely of that level. I mean, I'll give him the four-star stamp uh, for sure. I think, it, like, again, he's got the length. He's got the size. He's got the speed. Um, I'd like to see him tackle a little better. I, I've, I've told this to him already uh, from the beginning of the season. You're tackling too high. You're grabbing guys up around the shoulder pads, and you can get away with it at this level. But, you know, in, in college, you're not going to tackle that guy. He's going to break that tackle. So, got to break down be a little more fundamentally sound sometimes but you know nevertheless uh in terms of athleticism and potential which is really what you grade on quite a bit at this level going into college i mean he has it to be a four-star recruit well there you go and the christian one christian to another i think you should have that fourth star 
There's two Christians in your life, Gerard. How do you feel about that? <laughs> I feel fantastic about it. The next game uh, was St. John Bosco, who shut out Jay Sarah. Another Over shutout? Zero. Yeah, yeah. So Bosco comes away from that loss to modern day 17-7 in the big game for the Trinity League. And uh, they they shut out Jay Sarah, where, you know, modern day actually struggled a bit with Jay Sarah. I think that was like a 21-14, 21-13 game. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Bosco making a little bit of a, a statement there coming away from that loss. Uh, we talked to Mateo Ngalile, who's one of the top targets, if not the top target locally for USC right now, 6'5", 270 pounds. Defensive end also plays tight end. Didn't have a huge game, but uh, we do have some highlights of him. We do have some clips. I'm not sure if we're going to put those up directly or maybe try to film another game just to have um, just a little more, more, you know, a little more substance there. Uh, but again, he has that ability to probably come in and at least be a part of the rotation early on for USC next year. Um, we'll get into this a little bit later. I'm sure we'll talk about the recruiting angle coming away from the Utah game. But we've mentioned Mateo Ungalale several times in conjunction with the replacement of Tuli, Tuli Polotu. And that's going to be a huge issue for USC. If you're not going to be able to go into the portal and get a top-rated player, and we know how difficult that is for good defensive linemen, it's very difficult to go after somebody who, who's legitimately going to be an impact player for you on the defensive line, especially the interior. It's probably even more difficult because the, the talent pool is so limited and so shallow than going out at the high school level and getting those guys. So right now, Mateo Ungolale is the guy that, you know, he's not going to be Tuli Tuli Polotu next year. He's not going to be that guy, but mm-hmm. he can, he can add, he can supplement, he can be a part of the rotation to give you some of what Tuli gave you this year. And I'm pretty convinced Tuli Tuli Polotu is gone. I think he's going to be a first round pick. And so the chances oh. of him coming back next year are slim and none. So you got to go get Mateo. He's the guy. He plays inside, outside, just like Thule does. I think ultimately he's a three technique. I think that's where his his ceiling is the highest. But he has natural pass rush technique. He has natural pass rushing skills. Very good with his hands. Very good with his feet. Um, not maybe as overly dominant as some of the other high school defensive linemen that have come out uh, over the years, maybe like a Drake Jackson. But I will say this, I think he's had a really good year this year. Uh, even talking to the Bosco coaching staff, they really challenged him his senior year and said, listen, you're a guy out there, you got your five stars, everybody looks at you, you know, the brother of DJ, but you haven't necessarily um, produced at that level. And I think, uh, you know, against modern day, you saw it in really the past, you know, four or five games, you've seen him really step up and become more of a factor. And so uh, I think, you know, he has that ability, he has that talent to be that guy, and, and it's a guy that USC really needs because all of a sudden the defensive tackle position starts to look like the offensive tackle position, you know, the past three or four cycles for USC, and everybody's asking, you know, when are they going to get that guy? When are they going to get that guy? They have to upgrade on their interior pass rush, and again, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, with the Utah game. And uh, finally, we, we we checked out the Los Alamitos. Big game hold, for them. Hold on, Gerard. Hold on, Gerard. You forgot to shout out Jared Perez. Jared Perez for, you know, five-star interview. <laughs> five stars only Jared Perez interviewed Mateo. So he keeps the streak going. I just JP, wanted to point that out. JP loves his five stars. He will travel <laughs> far and wide to uh, get a five-star interview. And so, yeah, he checked out. He was there, and, and he's the one who shot the Bosco game. 
And um, so we'll uh, again see if we want to put that up right away or if we're going to go maybe shoot Bosco this week. I don't know. We'll, we'll see how that goes. But You've um, tried to send him to games and he's like, what five stars there? I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And he just blocks you until we, we get him a game with a five star. That's how he, he is. Just, he just can't hear me. He just like, he's like, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah you're breaking up. You're breaking up. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll call you back. He's become a diva now. He's become a recruiting diva. It's five stars or nothing. I mean, it started with Nick Harbor, and you know, it's all down. He got a taste. He got a taste for the five star, and he's like, "I got, I got to get more. I need more cowbell. I need more five star." Sorry, I interrupted you. Go back to Los Al Edison. Yeah, Los Al beats uh, Edison fifty-two twenty-seven, and um, a big, big league win for them. I mean, a lot of people thought this was going to be a much closer game. That Edison would put up much more of a fight. And it really didn't turn out that way. Malachi Nelson, another big night. Uh, Makai Lemon comes back from the ankle injury, which, uh, you know, was kind of doubtful maybe coming into the week. And he ends up, uh, I think he scored <laughs> on his first yeah. play from scrimmage back from that ankle injury. and kind of re-heard it too. But this was a big game for them. And so uh, that was a, a, a huge win for them. It's going to be interesting to see as we get to the playoffs where everybody gets seated. You know, is 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 Los Al going to be Division One, or are they going to end up in Division Two? And I don't I don't know how that all works with CIF, but uh, it will be interesting to see if uh, we we see them in with you know Modern Day and St. John Bosco and and all the Division One teams. Um, yeah, so that that was the, the final game, uh, an an interesting game of note for uh, Los Alamitos, and obviously there's a ton of uh, USC targets at Los Alamitos, just as there are modern day St. John Bosco and um, the one at Rancho Cucamonga. Yeah. Makai went 75 yards to the house on his first offensive snap. And I believe he also has a, a diving end zone interception. So didn't play a lot of snaps, but when push came to shove, that dude made plays. That dude always makes plays even when he's banged up. And that's something I've talked about, about, about him that, when I would see him in the offseason at seven on seven, he just looks a little bit banged up all the time. But he just goes out there and tries to play anytime, anytime he can to the point where I'm like, he plays both ways. He's really physical. He gets beat up. You know, they got to save him for the season. And he took some games off, some seven on seven, some passing events off. And he, he sat out some stuff. And I, I was happy for that because he's been having a really good season. And I hope that ankle does not keep him down long. Um, and with that, Gerard. That's it for Friday Night Lights. So I think it's time to move into something that we would have talked about uh, last week, but we didn't have a show last week. I know there's some people booing us uh, from their cars or from their kitchen where they're doing chores, whatever. They're booing us. We didn't have a show, so we did not get to talk about the top 247 update where, you know, every month the, the star givers that be, you know, get together and they talk about this person needs to go up. This person needs to go down. This person needs to come into the top 247. So this recent update was more of a bigger one than sort of uh, smaller tweaks that have happened. This was sort of a mid-season uh, update, so a lot a lot of changes. And for the most part, it was very beneficial for the Trojans, uh, headlined by Arizona wide receiver commit Jacoby Lane and Washington offensive line commit uh, Micah Benuelos. Both of those guys debuted in the top 247. Uh, Lane checked in at the number 236 overall, number 31 right receiver. And Benuelos moved all the way up to number 206 overall and the number nine uh, interior offensive lineman 
Lane saw his rating go up to 91, and Ben Wells moved up to 92. So with those additions, USC now has 10 commitments in the top 247. So, Gerard, before I move any longer, anything you want to react to those two just, you know, with the huge jumps into the to our rankings? No, not really. Um, you know, the rankings I kind of follow a little bit, you know, month to month. Uh, usually, like you said, the real big ranking changes don't happen, you know, every two to three months, if that. So, yeah, I don't keep an eye on it too much. You know, once those guys are committed to USC, they're committed to USC. And it, it just, I don't know, it doesn't mean a lot to me. It's not uh, something that I put a lot of weight into. Um, we'll see what these guys do when they get on campus and, and how they look when they get to spring ball, fall camp. I mean, it is nice to see the progression of certain players in other people's eyes because you have guys like Quentin Joyner and Amirian Peterson who were ranked a, a bit lower. You know, certainly with Peterson, who was a guy who was a three-star guy, and then people actually get to see him. And you see USC's not just following the leader when it comes to scholarship offers. You know, they got ahead of both of those running backs and they made uh, made them priorities early on. And you're seeing that with their senior season, those guys are having really big years and people are starting to agree that, yeah, these guys are, are, are top players. So you like to see that, you know, within the class to some extent, some of the maybe lower ranked guys uh, get a little bump in the rankings. Um, but again, I, I don't necessarily pay a whole lot of attention to it. Fair enough. Fair enough. And just to run down the rest of these very quickly, the other big riser outside of Lane and Ben Wellows, Texas running back Quentin Joyner moved up 70 spots, and he's now number 142 overall and the number five running back in the country. Also saw his rating move up two spots to number 93. So Quentin Joyner looking like a huge win and steal for Coach Kyle McDonald. Uh, Big win for him, and Joyner continues to rise up the rankings. Four-star Texas edge edge rusher, excuse me, Braylon Shelby, also continued his rise up the rankings, jumped nine spots to number 145 overall. We saw Zachariah Branch move up one spot in firmly into the top 10 to number nine overall. And Makai Lemon, who took a little bit of a drop going into the season, is back on the move, back on the rise, moved up three spots to number 21 overall. I also saw his rating jump to 97. And I know a lot of people have been like, Makai Lemon, Give him that five-star. Give him that five-star, 247. And I just want to point out that at number 21, he is – if he if he stays on that track, he will get a five-star. The top 32 players in the top 247 are given five-star rankings. Those rankings are – the five-stars, excuse me, are not just given out super early. Those are usually given at the very end when we do our – our top 32 five-star reveal so if makai lemon he is essentially a five-star at this point it is he is moving towards that but i know a lot of people are just like give him the five-star give him the five-star that doesn't happen till the end and only a few a handful of guys have that five-star now at this point so i just wanted to point that out uh, malachi nelson saw no change in his rankings stayed at number five number four quarterback in the country there were some drops new Offensive tackle commit, Elijah Page, he moved down five spots to number 242. Malachi Crawford dropped 14 spots to 225, the four-star cornerback commit. And then four-star Louisiana linebacker, Tackett Curtis, moved down 11 spots to number 132. I know we got a bunch of questions like, why did Tackett drop? Why did Tackett drop? Why did Tackett drop? And this is more so a case of other people moving up. 
So naturally, other people have to move down. And that's one of that case. It's not like they looked at Tackett's film and said, hey, this guy's got to go down. That That's not the case. This was a case of, you know, other people moving up. And I think by the end, when you look at his film and everything, I, I'm pretty confident that Tackett is going to have another big jump uh, before the final rankings are out. And just note, Tackett Curtis does not really give a shit about uh, rankings. And I know a lot of fans care about and worry about his rankings, but he does not care. He does not care whatsoever. And one of the big targets that moved up was four-star cornerback Roderick Pleasant, who jumped up 27 spots. He's now number 55 overall and the number five cornerback in the country. So nice jump uh, for Mr. Roderick Pleasant there, Gerard. Yeah, so that's an interesting one just because obviously coming out of the spring, a lot of people are thinking, saying, okay, you're running 10-1, dude. You're a track guy. You're a track guy. You're a track guy. And so he's had uh, some pretty good games that he's uh, sewn together. You've seen him in person a few times um, and had some good matchups going against uh, Jason Robinson in the slot, going against some other top receivers. And um, he's played pretty well this season. So he seems like a guy that continues to be one of the top targets for USC. I know there were some odd sort of, I don't know if there were reports or just rumors that USC wasn't really looking to sign him. He wasn't a priority. Absolutely never heard that from my end or my sources. He's always been at the very top for USC, and they've always recruited him hard. And obviously, they're recruiting him hard for track, too. Same thing with Nick Harbour. He's one of those guys that is a legitimate two-sport two athlete. And um, USC wants him pretty badly. So when you look at the the overall of the defensive back position and you go to that scholarship uh, chart breakdown, you kind of look at where USC is at certain positions and how top heavy they are with juniors or seniors, defensive back position is still pretty young. You know, you kind of have to take a step back and go, okay, how many guys do USC really want to take in this class when they have a decent amount of freshmen and sophomores in that list? And so that's something, again, we can get into talking a little bit about the recruiting angle, what have you, because we kind of look at this, a little bit as a midseason. It's not just about the Utah game, but it's also about where does USC stand right now. But with all these uh, rankings, um, it is interesting, you know, to see. I think for me, it's more where does that recruit go up or down on the position list? So their rankings within their position, are they actually dropping? When you're talking about the top 247, you're talking about overall ranking nationally. Man, who knows if this guy is an offensive tackle versus this linebacker versus this quarterback. Like, you're talking about different positions. It's so hard to really say that this guy who plays a completely different position is so much better than this guy who's, you know, six spots down. That's really, really cutting hairs, trying to be able to decipher, you know, this position from that position. I think that's more where you start to get into who are the five stars? Who are the four stars? What four stars? What are they rated? You know, what group of players are they among? Uh, but when you get to the nitty gritty of it, I definitely think if you're gonna put much weight into rankings, it's more watching where they're ranked among their positions because that's a that's more relevant. That's more, you know, there's four other guys that are now ranked ahead of this player. There's something going on there. You know, they didn't have a good senior year or they didn't have a good junior year or they had a camp or something where they just didn't look necessarily very good. And then you have a bunch of people jump them. And we don't see that very much, even in the players here where maybe they had a little bit of a drop. You know, Tackett Curtis didn't have a bunch of other linebackers jump him in the rankings. It was more so just 
you know, running backs or receivers or somebody else that had a big game, et cetera, et cetera. That's more of what you're seeing here. So I think that's, to me, a little more relevant when you want to follow rankings as to what type of season or how much potential a player is showing. And Curtis, you know, everybody saw him in person. They don't need to look at the film. They watched his team beat up, uh, you know, Arch Manning's team and Newton and, and slapped them around pretty good. And Flat Earthers. Tackett Curtis had a very good game. And a lot of people saw him up close and, you know, why they feel like he dropped or didn't drop. I don't know. Cause I didn't really talk to anybody who went to that game, but um, you know, for my money, there's a lot of investment in Tackett Curtis. And I think going forward again, talk about this in the angle, there's, there's, there's some shift that can happen in the personnel, uh, the defense right now with the interjection of a guy like Tackett Curtis. I mean, I think that's, going to be an interesting spot as we get through the spring. He's going to be a mid-year graduate. Um, how that impacts the personnel that USC has and where they put guys, et cetera, et cetera. I think Tackett Curtis is a, a big part of that. Absolutely the future of that defense. Now, Gerard, I think we're done talking about rankings and ranking changes and who fell and who rose. I think it's time for some target lists. And this is one of the things that was, you know, a thorn in your side that you needed some time off to get done is to knock out these target lists, which you do a really good job on. They just take a lot of time. I know you've talked about that, but for maybe we have new listeners uh, listening in on this podcast. Can you kind of just explain briefly what the target list is? And this is normally a VIP content. So this isn't the full in depth target list or target list breakdown, but we're just giving you a little bit of a taste of it. But Gerard, can you kind of break down uh, your target list, your baby here? You know, it's just an easy way to look at how the class is developing in one fell swoop. So, you know, you can go to the search engine, you can go to the commit list, you can go to the target uh, list, the prospect list on 24-7 sports or uscfootball.com, and you'll go through and you'll see individual players and offers and everything. This is is much more compact. It's just a, a way of format-wise being able to – absorb all the information of who these players are, who's committed, who's got a scholarship offer, who are they just evaluating, where are they trending, what positions did they really project at. And it's it's just a real quick sort of thing where you can kind of look at it really quickly and get some type of cursory knowledge as to where the recruiting class is going. And there you go. And we're specifically going to talk about the 2023 target list. We have some guys on offense that people are curious about. And we got some guys on defense that people are curious about. Where do, where do you want to start? Offense has the least amount of players, so maybe we start there. Yeah, I mean, offense, you know, clearly right now the biggest need on the board is Caleb Lamu, uh, the 6'5", 265-pound offensive tackle from Gilbert Highland High School in Arizona. And, you know, we talked about this in past podcasts. They get Elijah Page from Pinnacle out in Phoenix. Huge get for USC. Uh, one of the first players that they've been able to get in three recruiting cycles that you can actually look at as a bona fide difference maker at offensive tackle. Caleb Lamu is ranked actually a little higher than him. Is another one of those guys that really helps interject a little bit of talent on that offensive line. USC's offensive line, they're 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 at the end here. Uh, they're at the end where they they're coming uh, to the last few players of the 2017 recruiting class, and some of these guys are going to be moving on. And that was really the last class where you you had some depth of talent for USC. And they've been kind of a little bit of patchwork. You get Bobby Hackskins out of the portal. He's worked out great for them. 
I mean, he's playing above and beyond. He's, he's playing hurt, too. Uh, he has really been a huge get for them. And he wasn't necessarily looked at as like a franchise off to tackle coming out of Virginia. So I, I think that speaks to some extent uh, the, the player development that we've seen on the offensive line. Uh, but you need to get just t- more talented. And mm-hmm. we know that just from the offensive side of the ball and the defensive side of the ball. In the trenches, that is where USC – is going to be elite or they're not. They're going to be pretenders or contenders based upon what they recruit like on the offensive and defensive line. So Caleb Lamu is at the top of the list. Unfortunately for USC, Caleb Lamu was there at the Utah game. And so uh, he saw uh, Utah have have a good game and be able to beat uh, USC. I felt like, and again, I don't want to get too much into the recruiting angle because we'll probably talk about that. I'll just be rehashing what we've already talked about. But the offensive line, I thought, played okay. Utah. I think they actually played a pretty decent game, and I don't think it was a bad look for Caleb Lamu, who's who's deciding. You know, with Utah, USC. Um, I think you know Florida's trying to stay in it. I think Michigan is a little bit of a dark horse for him, but right now it's sort of a Utah uh, USC battle. And I think the main recruiting pitch for him right now from USC is that listen, you want to go win a national title, you you, you want to play at the highest levels. You come to USC, you know, you go to Utah to have a chance at maybe playing at a Rose Bowl every other year, every couple of years. You want to be a national brand. You want to be a first round pick. You want to be, you know, one of the creme de la cremes uh, as an offensive tackle with being a part of an offense that is one of the most feared in college football. You come to USC and that's kind of been the angle. I think he likes uh, Utah and USC because it's close to home for him. Um, USC's definitely played a little bit of the academic angle and that, uh, you know, his folks like that. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how this goes going forward. But, you know, Utah getting that win really helps them. And, you know, obviously I know you Trojan fans are not happy the way that game played out, but that's neither here nor there when it comes to, uh, recruiting and, um, you know, with Caleb Lamu specifically, uh, I think, you know, his official visit to USC should come, there's, there's potential it could come for homecoming in the Cal game. I think it's probably going to be pushed back for the Notre Dame game. I think USC wants to get a later visit. Um, Oregon is potentially still hanging around like they want to be involved and they want to get a visit. So we'll see how it shakes out. But USC, I think, wants to get in his ear last. He's not too far away, so there's always potential he could take an unofficial visit. But I think um, the later, probably the better for USC. Um, another guy that's actually on the offensive target list, even though he could be potentially a defensive target for USC, is Nicholas Harbor, uh, the 6'6", 235-pound defensive end tight end uh, from uh, from D.C., Archbishop Carroll, a guy that, uh, you know, we kind of – I need to really see a little more of his, his film this, this season just to kind of see where he's developed the most. I've seen some offensive film of him, and he, and he looks like he's, you know, getting better, I think, as a receiver. He'd be a hell of a receiver – just from a profile standpoint. I mean, if you're just looking at attributes, a guy that's running 10-2 at that size, if he can catch the ball at all, uh, that's a hell of a weapon. Uh, that's a hell of a weapon to have. Uh, but, of course, USC is also recruiting Deuce Robinson, uh, the 6'5", 250-pound uh, tight end from Pinnacle. He is the teammate of Elijah Page. And, you know, that helps USC to some extent. But what's not helping USC a whole lot is that the utilization of the tight end position has not been great. This season, especially compared to some of the schools that USC is competing against with Deuce Robinson. I think 
for Deuce Robinson, that is the kryptonite for USC right now. That's probably the one thing that I can see other schools really trying to negatively recruit and erode that lead that USC has for Deuce Robinson, which I think they still have a lead for Deuce Robinson. But when you're looking at Georgia and you're looking at Texas and you're looking at even Oregon, again, they're trying to get a late visit. They're trying to do some late shenanigans there, I think, with him and try to be in his ear last like they are with maybe Lamu and some other players. You know, they've had some pretty good tight end performances, all of those schools. There's guys that you can mention that have had very good uh, performances for those teams. And USC has kind of – they're trying to figure it out a little bit. You know, they start the season out – with Lake McCree, he gets a couple catches, he has a couple touchdowns. Then you see Malcolm Epps sort of pop up and become a guy that gets a couple red zone targets and touchdowns. And just lately, we've seen uh, you know more from them with uh, Josh Follow, you know, who had two touchdown catches against Utah. So it's been interesting. They're definitely getting a lot of run at USC, but they're not getting a lot of targets in the passing game. So that's something that we have to watch going forward. And I know. You know, for sure, Georgia and Texas and all those schools are going to work on Deuce Robinson about, you know, the guys that are in front of him that may be leaving that they are they're featuring in the passing game. I wonder if the return of a potentially and we'll talk about this for your recruiting angle, but I just wonder if the return of Jude Wolf from that that foot injury, which should be, you know, soon he's, he's doing better. But I wonder if that'll help, you know, maybe get some more consistent targets for the tight end position because he was kind of playing that H-back role, which is a vital role in this offense. And I wonder if that'll help maybe get the get the tight end some more shine outside of a, a random touchdown or two. I think it's tough because you have Jordan Addison there. You've got Mario Williams. You've got Taj Washington. You had Gary Bryant. There was a lot of players there that you want to get the ball to in the passing game. And there's only one football. I think some of it has to do with trust and some of it has to do with where Caleb Williams wants to go with the football. Um, so I don't know that it's all just, you know, Lincoln Riley drawing it up and, and the tight end not being included in those play designs or the playbook itself. I, I think that the tight end is there. I just think that, you know, the look for, you know, who wants to be featured, it depends a lot on where Caleb Williams wants to go with the football. More than Jude Wolf coming back, I think the potential – absence of Jordan Addison maybe next week or the following week it's just going to open up where you're going to have to go with the football somewhere else you know you're going to have to find different places you're not just going to throw it to the receivers so maybe in that case you know maybe in that situation you're going to see the tight end maybe utilized a little more and they'll throw the ball more um, to whoever's in there whether it becomes you know Jude Wolf coming in for the Cal game that was originally I think preseason when we heard he was out with that foot injury that he was shooting for the Cal game. We'll see if that happens. I, I, I'm a little bit skeptical of that. Uh, and then you have to question, you know, it, maybe he just takes a red shirt if he's not going to be able to get that many games underneath his belt to actually play. So we'll see. We'll see. That's, um, But that's definitely something that you have to note with Deuce Robinson. It's probably, like I said, the kryptonite. It's the only thing in the list of factors that are going to influence his decision where USC is is not at the top. You know, when it comes to academics, when it comes to being close to home, when it comes to the comfort level with the coaching staff, when it comes to, you know, really, he loves the offense. I mean, he feels, I think, that he's not just a traditional tight end. And for Pinnacle, 
He's used as a wildcat quarterback. He's used as a receiver. So there is the element of, hey, I'm a big receiver. I'm not just a traditional tight end. And that is something that the USC offense does not have. But I've often said it's always easier to recruit with something you do have and showcase how you used it than to try to recruit off to something you don't have. Um, it's not impossible. We've seen it happen before, but it is easier to say, look it, there's Drake London. You know, there's uh, that specific player. There's the blueprint. And this goes back to talking about uh, Mateo Ungalale and with Tui, uh, Tui Pelotu. That's the blueprint. There you are. There's no, there's no imagination needed. <laughs> you know, you are seeing exactly what you could do in this defense, and you could lead the nation in sacks. I think he's number four nationally in sacks now. No, he's number he, one. He's still, he's still number one. Still number one. Still number one. he dropped the number four, but okay. Still number one. Um, but uh, what, one of the top players, obviously, and you know the development uh, ha- has has taken it skyrocketed. You know, under Sean Nua. So I think from that standpoint, you know, again, blueprint, that's huge. And that's something that USC doesn't really have right now uh, at the tight end position in recruiting Deuce Robinson or, or maybe even Nick Harbour. Well, you talked about Thule a little bit and, and compared that to, you know, the offensive side of the ball with the tight end. But now we have some defensive guys. We have a bunch of guys to get through. I don't know if you want to talk about every individual one, but guys on this list include Jordan Hall, Elijah Hughes. Marcus Deal, Caleb Bryant, Roderick Pleasant, Dalen Austin, Warren Roberson, and Isaac Smith. So I don't know if you want to pick out your favorites in this or you, or you want to hit all of them. Well, we can talk about each of them. Uh, I have to tell you, though, that Tuli, Tuli Pelotu is number four in sacks nationally. He's tied with Jose Ramirez, Dominique Quiwan. Uh, Tyree Wilson and Akeem Mesador out of Miami. That's that's what I have from the NCAA. So maybe I'm I, I've got the wrong uh, the wrong source here. You know the NCAA. You never can trust them. <laughs> I have him tied for first with Jose Ramirez. So yeah. Well, how, what's what number is he is he tied for? Seven. Seven. Yeah. See, they're doing this. I think by game uh, on the NCAA website. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got a lot to UCLA who's got. Uh, six sacks. Six but games. Six six games. He has six point five per this. I use college. I I use college football stats. Yeah, this Just one it says it has seven solo uh, sacks for forty nine uh, sack yeah. yards. But anyways, okay, six and one half a dozen the other. He's one of the top defensive <laughs> linemen, and He's that's a guy there. that you can recruit. Jordan Hall, uh, the six five three hundred pound defensive lineman from Jacksonville. He's a guy that was originally going to visit USC. The first week of June, he canceled all of his visits during the summer. So it wasn't just that he canceled his USC visit. We thought at that point, perhaps it was just USC that he wasn't going to visit. He was going to visit some other schools, but he didn't really take any uh, official visits to my knowledge during the summer. And he's kind of pushed them all back to the season. So USC still there. He's still talking like maybe he's going to officially visit USC outside looking in. It, it seems like he's probably going to stay maybe in Florida, if not the South, I think Alabama's in there trying to get a visit. So that's one of those SEC defensive linemen out of high school, which are so, so difficult to be able to get. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, you got Elijah Hughes, who's sort of a little bit of a hybrid, a little smaller, 6'3", 265, out of Arlington, Virginia. Uh, extremely quick off the ball. A lot like Sam Green on his film, a little bigger than Sam Green. At least he has a little more length than Sam Green. But uh, another guy that you could see maybe starting out as a, as a five technique and then maybe jumping inside. If he puts on a little bit of weight, he ends up being you know closer to 280, 290. 
Um, and that's really, again, where USC needs to get better. They just need more talent, more bodies, bigger bodies in the interior if you're going to play at an elite level. You can mess around with these Pac-12 schools and, and, and potentially even win the Pac-12 with smaller, quicker bodies. But when you start going against the Big Ten schools, and they're going to be going against the Big Ten schools uh, on their regular season schedule uh, in a couple years, uh, but even when you get out of conference or you're going to bowl games and you're going to see Big Ten, SEC, even ACC, you're going to see schools with 300-plus pound defensive linemen and offensive linemen. So you've got to have just a little more bulk there. You know, right now in the two deep, all they have is Brandon Peely. All these other guys they have are, are – some of the, some of the guys are listed like 280, and you know they're probably closer to 270. Um, Stanley Tafu is a guy that's probably in that 270 range. I think he's you know, listed at 285 or something. They're definitely small right now, and they've got players – uh, like Tafu, who are you know converted middle linebacker types, so they're not necessarily guys that were made to be put on the defensive line. That's just sort of how uh, or where they ended up. Marquise Deal is another guy, six four two ninety. Um, started out uh, ranked as an offensive lineman, an interior offensive lineman, has been flipped over to the defensive line. Uh, he's playing out of Garland. He's a guy that's been looking at a lot of different schools. Thought maybe coming out of the summer he could be one of those guys that could commit to USC. He came out on an unofficial visit before his official visit, really liked it a lot, but he's taking his time. He's one of those few Texas kids that's just kind of taking his time and taking his visits during the season. He's been to Georgia. He's been to Arkansas. I think he took an unofficial visit to Oklahoma. I know Oklahoma wants to get him on an official visit. Texas has been sniffing around a little bit for him. So it's um, it's kind of just up in the air a little bit more for him. He was a guy that I think out of the summer you would have said had high interest. Now I think you just got to say he's got medium interest. I know USC wants to try to get him back on campus for an unofficial visit. I think that would be really big for them. Uh, Caleb Bryant is uh, another player that's uh, a little smaller, but a guy that you could probably put some weight on. So if we're looking at the guys that could come in immediately and have the size to play in the interior, Jordan Hall at 300 pounds, Marquis Steele at 290. Those are the type of guys you can throw out there, you know, immediately. Caleb Bryant's a 6'4", 260. Maybe got to put a little bit more on to be an interior guy. Maybe plays out of the box as a five technique. Um, a good player, but I've heard some questions about him um, just, you know, senior year being more dominant. You know, there's some schools that are sort of slow playing him and watching him a bit. There was some talk he might commit to Oregon. Uh, I believe he was committed to Utah over the summer and then mm-hmm. decommit when he started getting all those scholarship offers. And then it was talked about that he was leaning towards Oregon. I think Oregon and maybe even USC and some of these other schools, even the schools like Ole Miss down South are just waiting to kind of see if he becomes a guy because he kind of is his, his stock rose. And then the first four or five games I was hearing, eh, you know, he's just kind of out there. We're not seeing maybe uh, the, the the kind of dominant performances that we wanted to see from him. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if, um, you know, USC, you know, makes him a priority and pushes on him. Obviously, you know, beggars can't be choosers. If you're if you're not going to be able to get Marcus Steele and Jordan Hall and those type of guys, then, you know, you kind of have to get your big body somewhere. Um, going to the skill players on defense, we talked a little bit about Roger Pleasant. I think USC has led for him all along. But, again, you know, we talked about with Dylan Williams, you know, Actions speak louder than words. I mean, if actions speak louder than words, you know, Dylan Williams wouldn't be decommitted. Um, if they speak louder than words, then Roderick Pleasant uh, is uh, maybe a little shush and a nod because he's been around USC a ton. You know, mm-hmm. he's been around USC a lot, very comfortable with the coaching staff, extremely comfortable with the current players 
Uh, he's part of that little kind of clique with uh, Malachi Nelson and Makai Lemon. Those guys have all played together on various you know youth teams, uh, the Stars program they're all part of. So he's a guy that's uh, very close with the commits, very close with the coaching staff. And I think um, ultimately, you know, he's he's talking like he doesn't want to officially visit USC because he doesn't need to because he's been there so much. We'll see how that goes. In the old days, when you had Pete Carroll staff and you had USC winning double-digit games every year, uh, you could always count on that kid that had, you know, his five official visits, and he'd say, oh, you know, I don't really need to go to USC because I'm there so much. And then the last visit, he ends up going to USC. Yeah. So that's that's where you want to see them close the deal, and we'll see if they're able to get him up there for that last official visit. Uh, maybe, you know, even in December. It might not even be for the Notre Dame game. Um, Dale and Austin, we talked about him a bunch. It seems like you know, USC, they get a little traction with him. And then he kind of goes somewhere else and takes an official visit. And then everybody's talking about that school. You know, lately they've talked about Oregon because he just took his official visit to Oregon. Um, you know, still committed uh, publicly to LSU. LSU. So, you know, that's that's sort of playing out. LSU's having an okay year. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. But uh, another one of those guys that could always pop up at USC out of nowhere. You're not going to really – hear about it until it happens, you know, sort of thing. Um, and again, I, you know, again, looking at the defensive back, uh, the, the, the scholarship distribution chart and sort of, you know, where USC needs bodies, um, it's not really a cornerback. I mean, if we're being real, there's, there's Makai Blackman, and that's obviously a position that USC is going to sell and say, look at man, this guy, he's played himself into the draft. He's played himself maybe even to be a, a third, second round pick type of guy. And trust me, coming out of Colorado, nobody was talking about him being uh, that high of a draft pick. So that position is going to be open. Kai Blackman's going to leave. He's going to go to the NFL. And you, but you look behind him, and you know you've got Josh Jackson Jr. We haven't seen Josh Jackson Jr. We have not really seen Josh Jackson Jr. a whole lot since they moved him over from wide receiver. But this is a guy that Dante Williams was super high on when they made that move. Uh, former wide receiver out of Narbonne, very long has a, a ton of length in his arms, very high cut, good speed, very, very good ball skills. There's a lot to his game that is similar to Makai Blackman, quite frankly. Um, it's just a matter of him not being healthy. And so that's you know kind of a big issue for him. Jacoby Covington, who they got down from Washington, we've seen him rotate in a bit, kind of like that second team corner group uh, that he comes in with. He played opposite a bunch of Damani Jackson uh, in that uh, Oregon State game. You know, they played a bit. And I think they were in there with Washington State as well. So they like him kind of as a second, you know, rotational guy. He will compete for that starting job uh, next spring. Uh, as I said, Damani Jackson, freshman. Fabian Ross, who could play corner, might be a little more of a safety freshman. Sierra Wright, who's starting right now, redshirt freshman. Prophet Brown, who has got a ton of athleticism, freshman. Uh, so you've got – Quite a few guys, even with the defensive back position, when you start to talk about the safeties, Anthony Beavers, Zamirian Gordon, Zion Branch, who's coming away from an injury. And then you've got, you know, a bunch of guys who have, you know, sophomore um, eligibility, like Kalen Bullock. You know, he's still got another year ahead of him. So, yeah, they've they've definitely got a little bit of youth and depth at that defensive back position. So I don't know how hard USC goes in the paint for Dalen Austin or, or these other defensive backs. I think that they wanted four originally. It looked like they were going to get four. One of those guys was Warren Robertson, the uh, six-foot, 200-pound defensive back from Red Oak, Texas, four-star, very good player, plays on both sides of the ball for Red Oak. Uh, he looked like he was 
maybe going to commit to USC before the season. He's held off. He hasn't necessarily gotten a ton of attention from additional schools. And, and Texas came in there with the scholarship offer, which, you know, there were some Trojan fans that scoffed at that. But, yeah, that's a big deal for him. TCU is the school to beat for him right now. TCU having a great year, a fantastic year. Looked like they were going to lose to Oklahoma State last week, and they end up coming back in that game. So they're the team to beat for him. Trying to pry him away from Texas, is, it looks like it's going to be a bit of a challenge. Um, Isaac Smith is another player uh, that they've they've offered a scholarship to out of Mississippi. Seems like maybe they're not really making him a priority right now. They kind of cool on him. I, I just have to say, when you take a step back and you look at the defensive back position, you got Latrell McCutcheon. You got a bunch of guys there that are sophomores and freshmen in terms of eligibility. It's it's not a group where you're really looking at it the same way as you're looking at the offensive line or the defensive line or even linebacker where you feel like you have to interject some talent, some athleticism. They've got a decent group of young players that are talented players that are players that came out of high school and were highly touted. Sure, I don't think I spoke for like 15 minutes, but that's okay. I feel, I feel like everyone forgot speaking. what my voice. Yeah, yeah. Now. Well, I just, I just like very quickly want to give you for putting in all that work. Let me stop that early. I don't need to give you the whole applause, but thank you so much for running that down. There was a lot of information there, and I feel like everyone is rewinding to listen to that again. So, there is one, there is one player that I forgot to mention, and mm, okay. I'm blinking off the top of my head. It's the kid from Georgia who just got a scholarship offer, who is a corner slash safety. I don't even know if he is acknowledged as having a scholarship offer in the database, but I put the target list out, I think the day after he was offered a scholarship, or maybe it was the same day. I'm looking real quick here. I don't know much about him, but I don't want to gloss over the fact that that is another scholarship offer. Oh, here we go. Tyler, Tyler Scott, Tyler Scott just got offered a scholarship at a Pebble Brook uh, in Georgia, 6'2", 185. And um, a player three-star. And that's interesting because, again, I don't know that UC needs to really reach for players. And, and you know, certainly if they are going after guys uh, and they're offering scholarships, they, they don't think they're reaching. They, they think they're good players. Um, 24-7 doesn't think that he's necessarily a guy that USC has to go across the country for. But he's got scholarships from Alabama, Auburn, a few other schools. He's listed at having um, pretty high interest in Alabama and Auburn. So he could be one of these players that just – you know, with that senior film, baby, you get that senior film out there and these schools, they want the best high school seniors to sign. You don't want to hire or excuse me, you don't want to sign the best high school sophomores and, and juniors. You want guys that are playing well as they're getting out of high school and their their trajectory is continuing to go up. And, um, you know, perhaps this is a player that uh, is is you know fits that bill. So that's another safety uh, offer that's gone out. Uh, again, pretty interesting just because uh, I don't know if it's necessarily um, a need position for USC, that they have to get bodies at. They need to interject a certain amount of talent just to kind of change the way they can call plays, et cetera. I don't feel like defensive back is really that position. But we know Dante Williams will always cultivate options no matter he's what. He's always working. That's, that's, that's the other thing you have to keep in mind. He's, he's, not, he's like T. Martin. This T. Martin was the same way. In fact, I mean, I'll let you guys in a little secret. There was a lot of um, – there was a little bit back and forth, some tension, let's just say, on Sark's coaching staff because some of the defensive coaches felt like T. Martin just wanted to go and offer and take every receiver in the country. And there was some 
back and forth about that. Like, you know, we're we really going to take eight receivers this year, but that's what an elite recruiter does. He is going to protect his position. He's going to grind and he's just going to try to get as many good players on his board as possible and take as many good players. Cause guess what? you got to go out there every Saturday and your position has to eat. Your position isn't eaten and you're looking bad. Well, there goes your job. So he, he's, he's not slowing down. He's not going to say, Oh, you know, we have enough good players. That's not in Dante Williams vocabulary. He, he will take the whole class of defensive backs if you let him. So, you know, the other coaches just got to pound the table harder and go find uh, more talented players that need positions that they have to be able to sign. Uh, this is an impromptu question I'm just throwing at you because it was asked to me and Ryan on the Parastop podcast. And I forgot who the person was, but you, you, you asked the wrong podcast, my guy. This was a question for composite two-star recruits. So... I'm just asking you, Gerard. The question was thrown to me and Ryan. <laughs> uh, better recruiter, Dante Williams, T. Martin. Ooh. I, I, I will tell you who I picked, but only after once you make your I know who my, you picked. You picked Dante Williams probably. I did not. I did. No, you didn't. Oh, interesting. I, I, would think you would, I would have thought that you would have picked Dante Williams just because he's a little more your era you know, than, than T. Martin. Definitely more my era, but – I felt like, one, I just know T's a great recruiter. And I thought that Gerard, you yourself, I was thinking, I feel like Gerard would pick T. Martin. So that is the right <laughs> answer. So I went with I T. Would, Martin. I, would, I might lean towards T just because of the guys he recruited and how well they end up playing. And they're in the NFL now. You know, guys like Robert Woods. To go to Sarah when Sarah was in their heyday and lock that place down. And they locked that place down, and T was a part of some staffs that were, eh, you know, <laughs> they had they had that first year with Lane Kiffin uh, that was not very good, and then the second year was good, and that was you know leading them into that 2012 season where they completely fell on their face, no pun intended, uh, Sun Bowl, and you know T was still getting guys, you know, and and he he sort of over the years when he became an offensive coordinator, and this was something I've said before. Don't expect a ton of recruiting prowess out of your offensive and defensive coordinators. Those guys got a lot on their plate, and that was something, even though you had Lane and then you had Sark uh, as the play callers and they kind of ran the offense, uh, once you made T. Martin that offensive coordinator under Clay Helton, he just had a lot to, to take care of. He couldn't be a national recruiter the way he was. He used to recruit both sides of the ball. When he first got there with Lane Kiffin, you just go send T. Martin down in the south, you go send him to Sarah. You go send him to Long Beach. Wherever you send him, he's going to get it done. Like, he's going to get those guys done. He was involved with Penny Sewell. I mean, Penny Sewell wouldn't pick up the phone for USC when they went to go visit him at the high school. They go down to um, – oh, why am I blinking at the high school? Orem High School, and they go to visit Penny Sewell, the five-star offensive lineman that, that ended up committing to Oregon many years ago. He's in the NFL now. And the number, like, two pick or something, number three pick? Or Correct. And so they go to the high school to, to do their, you know, their, it was their in-home visit time. So, you know, during the in-home visits, usually the, the coaching staff may go to the school and actually see the kid at the school and then they'll follow him home and then they'll have their in-home visit at home. So they go to the school and they're looking for Penny and they can't find him. He's nowhere to be found. They bump into his brother and they're like, hey, uh, we're supposed to be here to meet Penny. Where's he at? We called the house. We, we're, get, we're getting nowhere here. Like we're, we're standing around here. And, you know, T wasn't the lead guy on Penesul. 
and, and you know, I won't, I won't get into everybody that was there, but <laughs> but uh, he wasn't the lead guy. And so everybody's calling around and kind of scrambling in a little bit of panic mode because, you know, you only get so much time. They're thinking maybe organs swing by and they like kidnapped them because this is something that happens during in-home visits. Sometimes a school will come in and they'll they'll have a kid and, and they'll be and they'll have their a little whatever visit with him at the school and then they'll take him and then they'll go out to some restaurant or something and they'll yeah. just kind of sort of hold him hostage there um low-key you know because they know some other school is supposed to have an in-home visit that night and they're just like ah you don't really need to go talk to them very much let's just chill out here <laughs> eat some chicken wings or something and so they're thinking oh we're gonna maybe slid in here before us and they're off somewhere with him and the, the you know his brother who's at Oregon now uh, says, uh, oh, no, no, he's at the girlfriend's house. And so of all people, uh, T. Martin is the one who who had that number and called him up. And he's like, oh, coach, I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot, whatever. And he came down. And it was kind of interesting that, you know, T was the guy that, that made that call, that they actually got their in-home visit and everything um, because he wasn't the guy. And so that happened sometimes. T was just able to get it done. Um, you know, he went into Narbonne when USC – uh, was a, a no-fly zone for USC at Narbonne, you know, and there was a lot of things going on um, coming off of Raymond Scott's uh, recruitment. Raymond Scott, you know, the, I don't even want to get into it, but yeah, USC, Narbonne was a little bit of a no-fly zone when they were trying to recruit Jonah Tanaau, and so T was the guy that kind of was able to get their foot in the door and get them in on a lot of those visits and uh, a lot of those meetings and what have you. Uh, he's just, I mean, T could run for politics, 100%. T could run for politics. He just knows how to, you know, kiss babies and shake hands and, and, and placate and do that thing and, you know, work laterally as well as North and South. And so, um, yeah, he, he was a very, very good recruiter for them at a national level. And, and then when he became an offensive coordinator, again, a lot more on his plate and, and he kind of peeled back and was like, Hey man, I'm just, I'm just going to go get my guys. I'm going to go get my position and protect my position and lock it down. And he did that. You know, he had a, a tremendous amount Nelson Aguilar, all these guys that, he was able to sign and they weren't just good high school football players, but they were guys that ended up going on in the NFL as well. So that's probably why I would give him the nod, but certainly Dante is, is at that level. He's in that league because like you yeah. said, cultivates options always seems to be in the picture with, with some guys that maybe you don't think USC is in the picture with. Um, and when they win, when USC gets to this level where they're starting to win games, you really got to have to keep the door open for some guys. There just could be somebody that just pops up from, you know, Kansas City, Missouri, or somewhere in Texas, and it's some four-star guy that, you know, nobody really knew USC was was that close in on, and, and he can land some of those guys. And I will say Dante Williams, T. Martin, as you said, both cut from the same cloth. And I think with elite recruiters, they just make it seem so effortless. They, they, they're like, they just seem like they never sweat. They're always on point and they're kind of cool. If that makes sense. Like T was always felt very cool. Dante's always very, very cool as well. So, and while we both picked T, I feel like it is, it is a close battle. And I think it's a, it's a hell of a battle to talk about Dante Williams versus T Martin, but you have more stories about uh, the great T Martin. So thanks for answering that drug. That is going to take us to the break. It's time for a break. We are going to come back and we're going to talk about the recruiting angle of USC and Utah, USC's first loss. We'll get into that. We'll talk about around college football, what happened in week seven. Uh, look ahead to week eight in a big 
game in the Pac-12, and then we'll run down the Friday night schedule for this week. And then we got a bunch of listener questions to go through. Gerard, you ready for your break? I am. I am definitely ready for it. All right. We'll be right back after this. Gerard. Yes. We're back. We the are. Great words of, in the great words of Sam Ellinger, former Texas quarterback. <laughs> We're back. How oh, wow. That talk about the full circle there. So so I didn't know that it was Sam Ellinger saying. Yeah, 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 baby. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, oh, oh. I thought you recognized it. I'm sorry. I thought you recognized it. No, I didn't. But, you know, okay. again, I, okay. I see, you know, Vince Young on the sideline in that Utah game. And I just kind of think, okay, you know what? You had that nice little run there. And that Colt McCoy, that was a good team that lost Alabama. But. Gosh, he was injured in that game. He was injured in that game. He was injured in that game. But when people start talking about being back, I think Alabama, I think Nebraska. Okay, Nebraska is a team that you can start wondering if they start winning a bunch of games and say, you know, they hire a great coach and all of a sudden they, they start getting nine wins and then they get 10 wins and they get, a, then you start to go, okay, remember Nebraska? Do you remember Tommy Frazier, Nebraska? Do you, do you remember those teams? Like, that was a program that had quite a dominant run. The Miami, Florida State, some of these schools that had had multiple national championships in a very small span of time and were just good. They were just at the top of college football for long stretches. And I don't know, man, I, I, I don't want to insult Texas fans, but I, I just in my lifetime, yeah, I've never do. really seen Texas Longhorn football have – those type of stretches where you can compare them to Miami or Nebraska uh, or, or maybe even Ohio State. And I think there's it feels like there's a bunch of teams trying to get back to being back and be able to say that, you know, USC is one of them. Uh, Florida State, you know, they're having a tough time at that. But Florida, they're trying to do that as well. And I think leader in the clubhouse right now is Tennessee, Gerard. Tennessee having a heck of a season. And we're going to talk about that in a round the football when we look at other football scores. But before we get into that, we have to talk about USC's first loss of the season. Some people want to blame it on us for having a <laughs> podcast. We're not going to get into that. We already addressed that at the top of the show. But there was, as always, positives and negatives to look at. I feel like you want to start with the positives. Yeah, and we pushed this down a bit in the podcast. You know, it was one of those things that we just talk about it. Right at the top, first loss, or do we push it down? And we're going to push it down. <laughs> push it way down. Push it way down. Way down, way down. Don't talk about it. Don't think about it. It's a tough loss. But I think first and foremost, and this is what I tweeted afterward, and a lot of people, I think opposing fans mostly, didn't like the sentiment. USC is still way ahead of schedule. I mean, folks, this is a team that won four games last year. This is a team that with Clay Helton – had been gutted to a large extent, uh, certain positions that they just didn't recruit well. I think culturally, uh, the program as a whole was hollow. And so this is something that I know in terms of expectations, Lincoln Riley, I've said this before, has not done himself any favors. And this is where you sort of get the casual fans that, you know, over a one-point loss on the road at Utah. Utah is a good team at home. Yeah. Utah is a good team team at home 
You put them on the road, and they're decent. You know, they're, they, 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 they look a little more average. But they're the type of team, and I think I said this on a podcast maybe a few weeks ago, that reminds me of Virginia Tech with Frank Beamer. That's what Utah reminds me with Kyle Whittingham. They're the type of team that when everybody sees them coming and they're actually nationally ranked, that's when they're beatable. They don't, they don't have that chip on their shoulder. But it's when they lose a game and people start doubting them and they get lost on your schedule and you got to play at their place at night. They are a crappy team to have to play, man. They're a hard team to have to play. I remember those games where Florida State with Bobby Bowden, they would be rolling people, and then they go up Thursday night and they have to play at Virginia Tech, and you got lightning bolts hitting cars and inner Sandman, and you and you get and you beat and you get beat on the road against Virginia Tech, who's you know ranked 25, or they're not even in the top 25. And it's like, how does it happen every freaking year? NC State's kind of become that team in the NCAA or the ACC nowadays more than Virginia Tech. But that's sort of what Utah is like now in the Pac-12. And they're just a, it's a tough team to play in Salt Lake City. So I think first and foremost, you know, you got to keep your expectations realistic. You got to look at this team for what it is in terms of personnel, the depth chart, et cetera. And you got to realize it takes some time to really convince uh, everyone on the roster and get everybody buying in. And I think, you know, miraculously, Lincoln Riley and that coaching staff has brought a team of mercenaries and renegades sort of together. And that was another huge question we had coming into the season. It's like, listen, they've got some talent now, you know, they've, they've, they've put some players in some positions that, you know, they're, they're definitely upgrading, but none of these guys have played together. And that's a huge thing in football is chemistry. And they've been able to have great chemistry on this team. So that's definitely a big talking point hats off at this point in the season to Lincoln Riley, to getting so much buy-in and so much camaraderie and just connection with this locker room. I think that's absolutely huge. They lose a game. Jordan Addison goes down. It's really tough. What do we see? We see Michael Jackson, the third, step up and just step right in, boom, slant pass, which we haven't seen USC actually run many slant patterns or throw the ball to the slant a whole lot. Hits Michael Jackson, boom, gets a touchdown. Breaks it, breaks a tackle, gets a touchdown. Doesn't have much of a reaction. Been there, done that. Even though he hasn't, <laughs> he's a very, he's a very chill guy. That's what Mario said. He's a very quiet guy. And he said today in practice that he didn't even have time to really think about it when his number was called to for that moment. So just kind and of that, very even. That that is good coaching, Dennis Simmons. That is good coaching when your guys go in and they just from muscle memory. Go in, run the play, and it works. That is, that's what you train for. You don't train to go in there and think about what you're doing. You train to go in there and just let it happen. And that's when you're at your best playing football. There's no hesitation. It's just this methodical, I do this all the time. I trust my training. That's what spec ops guys always say. You know, that's what Navy SEALs always say. It's it's trust your training. You're gonna get in a position, it's gonna be awkward. What do you do? You don't worry and panic. You trust your training. And that's the same thing with football. And so he did that. And you see a guy step up. And I think that's, you know, again, player development and finding guys to be able to make those plays, I think is huge. And they were able to get that from Michael uh, Jackson third. So, you know, big time play by him. I think something that's interesting looking at the receiver position going forward, because with Jordan Addison down, and we don't know how long he's going to be down. He looks like he's in good spirits doesn't certainly doesn't look like a season ending injury mm-hmm. certainly if it's uh, you know a high ankle sprain it can start 
to eat into certain weeks. You think, oh, it's not so bad. And then you actually try to cut on it. And we have to look at that. We have to think about that going forward because he's got draft stock. He's going to start thinking about, you know, okay, if I've got so many games left, is it worth it? So we'll look at that. We'll see that. We have to look at that objectively and realize that um, he's a guy that's going to go high in the first round. And so he's got to make a, a business decision. Uh, but right now it looks like he's going to be back. But in his absence, his potential absence, you look at the wide receiver position, you look at what USC has, you know, you get a guy like Michael Jackson, the third that steps up. I thought it was interesting in that particular game is they ran Jordan Addison a bunch. I shouldn't say a bunch, but they ran him a couple times. I think he had like 27, 30 something yards total rushing. And I thought to myself, you know, that is a wrinkle that we should see a lot more of going forward with Zachariah Branch and Makai Lemon. Because as good as Jordan Addison is as a wide receiver, and he's very, very good, he's going to be a first-round pick, Zach Branch and Makai Lemon are better runners in the open field. Flat out, better runners. Faster, a little more twitchy. I mean, Zach Branch is a guy that can that can you know run in that 10-4, um, uh, area, which is you know elite speed. And those wrinkles of having those receivers in the backfield – uh, throwing to them, whether it's in a screen or actually just handing the ball off to them, that's going to be an exciting thing to watch going forward uh, when you have those guys committed. Uh, that, that's going to be fun to watch, and I think that's going to be something we see a bit more of um, in 2023, 2024 going forward. Josh Fallow, tight end, senior, emerging at tight end, just a feel-good story, um, something I think, you know, again, with this team and and the, the camaraderie they have, you know, players and teams that enjoy the ride and the journey and are close, that's that's a good sell on the recruiting process and the recruiting trail. You're going to have official visits. You're going to have home visits. You're going to have a lot of guys reaching out to the players in the locker room. You know, there's connections and there's relationships there. And they want to know, hey, you know, you got a kid at St. Francis. It's like I, I, I'm Deshaun Womack, and I'm thinking about coming out and officially visiting USC. I'm going to give Shane Lee a call. And, you know, Shane, how's it like being out there? You're at Alabama. Now you're at USC. And if Shane just enjoys being a part of this team and the camaraderie and the relationships that he has in the locker room, it's going to bode well to to get USC uh, in the, the foot in the door into some of these recruitments, you know, with some of these guys that might be coming to other schools or some of these guys um, that are looking to take another visit to USC. They only took one unofficially, et cetera. You know, that's kind of a big deal. So when you see guys like Josh Follow emerging, I think that's big. It's also big just from the standpoint we talked about earlier in the show, utilizing the tight end position, you know, finding it. Again, I don't think it's so much Lincoln Riley. I think Caleb is just very comfortable with Mario Williams. He's very comfortable with Jordan Addison. He feels like those guys are going to get open. And so that's where he wants to go with the ball. We've seen a lot of him scrambling and holding on to the ball quite a bit. And it seems like he's looking for those guys to make a play where potentially he could just get that ball out quicker and get it to a tight end and get six, seven yards. And so that's something that, you know, I'm sure they're going to review. There needs to be some self-evaluation that goes on during the bye week. So Caleb Williams has to be able to do that for himself. And Lincoln Riley has to be able to do that. Say, look, at you know, there are some passes that we are overlooking. And, you know, if it's a quick game, the tight end is probably going to be involved more than not. Um, Travis Dines, you know, almost seven yards to carry in that game. Again, it brings up the question, is USC – Running the ball enough? Are they committed enough to the run? Are teams just guessing on tendencies and playing more in nickel situations because they know USC is going to eventually want to pass the ball? That's a question, but I think Travis Dye still having big games. And, and them running the ball, that counter run, 
is just it's it's nice. You know, the USC is actually being able to run the ball and be able to gash teams with the run. We haven't seen that uh, for for quite a few years. So the balance of the offense is still good. It's still going to help them recruit not only running backs, but it's going to help them recruit offensive linemen. We talked about this before with Eliza Page, Caleb Lamu, seeing these guys be able to get downfield and hit the second tier, get to the second level of the defense. Um, make some explosive blocks. That's what linemen like. You know, they don't want to just be back on their heels, pass protecting 50 times a game. They want to be able to get upfield. They want to dish out some punishment. So we've seen that with this offensive line, which again, not the most talented offensive line that USC's had in recent years. Uh, this is a little bit of a patchwork offensive line, and um, and they're doing well. They're looking good. So I think player development for Josh Henson, he's hanging his hat on that a bit. He's got some guys that are playing above, I think, where they were projected to play or how well they were projected to play. And so that's a good thing. I think that's something USC can sell on the recruiting trail. Absolutely. And I don't know if you hit on Josh Fowler yet. I think you did. But how great is it to see him kind of have that performance after, you know, the injuries he's kind of gone through? Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, it's it's it's. Just, you know, from a personal standpoint, seeing a guy that's a high four star commits to USC, has a big game in the Pac-12 championship, and you're thinking he's on his way, and then just gets lost, just gets lost. And I had prior staff members tell me, well, you know what, he doesn't know where to line up, he doesn't know the plays, and you go, okay, is that all his fault? You know, if your players don't learn where to line up, you know, I, I, there's there's got to be a little bit of accountability, I think, both with coaching and the player from that standpoint. And so the two way um, street. Yeah, it's a two way street. Exactly. And so uh, seeing him, you know, in there now he's blocking. Well, he's involved. Well, we know he's, he's, he's a big time player. I mean, he's a guy that can catch the ball. He's a natural pass catcher. He was a dude at a high school catching the ball. Yeah, Go back and look at that tape. Five. He can run pretty well. Uh, it's interesting. It's just the tight end position has been interesting because again, we saw Lake McCree, uh, out of the gates is that that position and it was a lot of 11 personnel with him and uh, Malcolm Epps then McCree kind of got hurt and they went more with Malcolm Epps and that's when you started to see Josh follow at the H-back position and that H-back position right now it's again a little jerry-rigged because I don't think you really would have Josh Fowler there if Lincoln Riley had his druthers I don't think that's the position he's 6'5 you know almost 260 pounds that's um that's not really a lead block type of profile. You know, you're a little tall, a little gangly uh, to be, uh, you know, a, a lead blocker and how they use uh, those players, at least back in the Oklahoma offense. So uh, we'll see, you know, how that position maybe over the years starts to evolve. Uh, do they really want to go with two traditional tight ends on the field or do they have a guy that's legitimately more of a hybrid like McCree is a bit more of that player. You know, he's he's a bit he's a little more like 6'3", 6'4", and probably a little more mobile, not as big. Uh, but even still, you know, usually uh, going back to when Lincoln Riley was at Oklahoma, you saw a guy that was like 6'2", 235, 240 playing that position, uh, a, a, at least recently for the Sooner offense. So um, I don't know if, if Josh Follow is necessarily the, uh, the quintessential prototype for that H-back position, but he's, he's making it work and, and he's playing well. And again, like you said, it's just nice to see a guy stick it out. You know, that we were talking, hearing that, you know, he was meeting with coaches and his family was meeting with the coaches like two years ago that, you know, there was potential he might transfer, but a lot like uh, Stephen Carr, he really liked USC. He just liked USC. You know, it, it took a lot for Stephen Carr to eventually go. I mean, it took Dalen McCullough 
<laughs> to end up at Indiana, quite frankly, to get Stephen Carr to transfer. And uh, Josh Follow just decided, you know what, I, I just want to stay at USC, and it, and it has worked out for him. And just shout out to Josh Fallow. One of the coolest uh, commitment videos that I've seen in covering this, wherein he had several different, you know, relatives, you know, doing the haka. Everyone was wearing a different jersey of a different school, and then at the end, it's USC that pops up, and you know, gives the fight on. So one of the cooler uh, commitment video ideas uh, coming from Josh Fallow out of Sacramento. So excellent to see him, and just wanted to give him a little bit of his flowers here you know, going in his final season. And he's put on a lot of weight. You know, he was a skinny dude coming out of high school, but this dude is legit big guy looking like right in the middle of like big tight end and offensive tackle. He's put on a lot of weight and it's, it's paying off. And he said, I believe he said yesterday, he does he's added more weight, but he doesn't feel like he sacrificed any of his sort of athleticism, which a dangerous uh, combination for a guy of his skill set catching the ball. So hopefully we'll see more of him uh, as a weapon in the red zone and maybe some, uh, in the middle stuff, too, you know, maybe down the field, but we'll see. Now, there were some negatives, Gerard, and most of that is, well, all of that essentially is on the defensive side of the ball. This was a defense that was within the top 25 of uh, scoring defense and had become a team that was known for shutting teams down in the second half. And in this one, just kind of fell apart as the game went on. And, you know, we can talk about, I mean, we don't have to talk about what I'm saying is I've mentioned this multiple times that that defense got off to a really good start out there in Salt Lake city, you know, took the, took the, took the crowd out of it along with the offense and forcing a, a, a forcing a punt, uh, Utah to miss field goal. And then to get an interception that is turned on a roughing the passer call, a very questionable one at that. And who knows what that game looks like if that's not called. Caleb Bullock makes that pick. Caleb Williams, maybe that offense drives down, get another score, it's 21-0. And who knows what the game looks like at that point. Now, this was a very confident defense, but their confidence got rocked out there in Salt Lake City. Gave up 43 points and a loss. Could not stop them on on the final drive. And they're going to have nightmares about tight end Dalton Kincaid. 16 catches on 16 targets. For 234 yards, just had no answer for him, no matter what they did. And, you know, Alex Grinch, that defense, that side of the ball has a lot of soul searching to do on this bye week. They have to stew in that. They have to watch that film. They have to figure out what what to do moving forward. They have some weaker games, weaker opponents coming up so they can get some more confidence. But they need they need to be right by the time they get to that UCLA game. So, Gerard, where do you want to jump in with this defense? Yeah, I think um, certainly the red zone defense was not up to par. I mean, USC has had some some series where the offense has been able to gash them with some big run yards or big passing yards. But once they get in that red zone, USC was ranked, uh, I think, like number one red zone defense coming into that game. They were up and there, yeah. They weren't able to keep uh, Utah out of that red zone. I mean, again, or out of the end zone, I think. Utah ended up being six for eight in terms of their possessions uh, where they end up scoring. So yeah, it, um, it certainly was one of those things where the bend, but don't break, they broke and it ended up being a game back and forth. Going back to what you said. And I, I know Trojan fans are, are very upset about that roughing the passer call. Now I was in the first quarter, but certainly 
I think, like you said, the game started out so well for them defensively. And you just saw the momentum building, and you're able to get that interception. Uh, I think that was on a fourth down play as well. I, I thought it was third down. Both of them were third down. I, I felt like that was a fourth down play, but maybe it was a third down play. It was. Certainly, I'll check it out. You keep talking. I'll check it, it It was. It was certainly one of those plays that you felt like the possession was going to change. And yes, USC was unstoppable on offense. So you kind of feel like, yeah, they're going to go down. They're going to score, which they ended up doing the next series, even though they got the kickoff and it wasn't on an interception. Uh, they ended up going right down the, the field and going up 21-7. But 21-0 is a lot different than 14-7, which is what ended up happening. They ended up, Utah that is, scoring on that very next play. And 14-7, just, oh my gosh, it's such a relief to you to only be down that much as opposed to 21-0 to and that defense feeling like they're completely plugged in. The, this, it does two things as well, and this is more game analysis than his recruiting analysis, but I'll just say my piece here. Uh, one, it it changes the momentum of the game in terms of how Utah may call the game from that standpoint. You're down 21 nothing. Your offense is going to have to change a bit. You're going to have to pass the ball. You're going to have to get it downfield. And maybe Utah was still going to be able – to, to be competitive and be in the game, perhaps win it going to the pass more because USC had done a pretty good job containing their run. Um, but certainly 14-7, your, your offense and your scheduling of the offense in terms of the play calls and, and what you do from a run-pass standpoint, you don't have to be one-dimensional. When you're down 21 nothing, uh, you're probably going to become one-dimensional. Even that early in the game – there's more likely to be panic within the offensive coaching staff. Okay, we need to make some plays downfield. And that is exactly what USC wants. That's part of, I think, their defensive script. I think that's part of their overall game plan is to put pressure on possessions and really force the offense to have to do things, the opposing offense, that is, to have to do things they may not want to do just to kind of keep up with USC's offense. And when you're down 21 nothing, man, it probably changes the game for you a little bit. The other thing that I think is a big aspect of this that nobody's really talking about is certainly what it does to your attitude towards rushing and how aggressive you are into the offensive backfield. And what the officials were doing was trying to get USC to, 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 to hold back. You know, you start throwing a bunch of rushing the passer calls that are that are very marginal and, and, and in one case just egregiously bad uh, you're telling the defensive line and the blitzers from USC hey man you know don't don't hit the quarterback you know pull back and and then all of a sudden when you've got a running quarterback like Cameron Risen right who's mobile and, and can be a runner that really messes with your defense in terms of tackling in terms of just again how aggressive they are in that offensive backfield and then they get called for another roughing the passer later on in the game. And it is the same thing. And I, I, you know, I give my hats off to USC and Sean Nua because they, they seem like they still wanted to be aggressive and they didn't let that call really, you know, taper how much they wanted to, to get in and off the backfield and, and how many hits they wanted to get on camera rising. But again, it's sort of in the back of your head, you know, you get these bad target calls. I mean, they, they call the target call that was clearly not a target call. And we have to stop the game now to review this. That target call against Kalen Bullock in the Washington State game was a bogus call. I mean, I, I saw a target call against um, Bryce Young, Heisman Trophy winner against Tennessee, which was a huge call down there at the goal line. And they reviewed it and they didn't call it. 
targeting. And it was 10 times the amount of targeting, if you're going to call targeting um, helmet to helmet or what have you, uh, than the Caleb Bullock targeting was. So just in general, it felt like the officiating was definitely one-sided. And certainly I think of this season, it's the game where you've seen that and felt that a lot more. I think in a lot of these games, there's been some bad calls against USC. Again, Kalen Bullock getting thrown out of the Washington State game. I think that was a good call. There's been other calls that have been bad, but then they've gone both ways. There's been calls that have gone USC's way in some of these games. We didn't see that at the Utah game. Uh, Utah fans want to make a big deal because they put, you know, four seconds, five seconds back on the clock. There was a phony timeout. Totally bad call, you know. That was terrible. Uh, but but the, not the game-changing calls that, you know, when you – when again, when you're going to go up 21 nothing, and it just seemed like USC was ready to, to probably go on a run there, and, and that – that was going to be pretty ugly. I mean, you're going to be at halftime, 28-14, maybe 35-14. That's just a different ball game. And, yeah. again, that's where USC – that's kind of where they remind me of these old Oregon Chip Kelly teams where, you know, their offense is sometimes their best defense. They put so much pressure on the opposing offense to have to score and keep up. They kind of take that offense out of their game, and that plays into the hands of their defense where they can kind of be opportunistic. They can get – um, turnovers and whatnot because the opposing offense is pressing so hard to try to keep up score for score. Utah never was never was really in that situation because it was 14-7. I mean, you know, it wasn't 21 nothing. It was 14-7, and they were able to stay in the game. And then penalties and other things happened. It kept them in the game. Uh, USC, you know, they didn't turn the ball over. Usually when you lose a game like that, it's because you turned the ball over. USC didn't turn the ball over, so that was good. They didn't have a lot of egregious penalties on the offensive line, um, which, again, is showing more discipline. I think that they've been much better at that. With the Clay Helton years, you'd see offsides left and right. On both the offensive line and defensive line, it would be very frustrating. A lot of calls like that that would go against them, you didn't see that. Um, so that's a positive, uh, going back to the positives in this recruiting angle for the Utah game. I think USC, we talked about it with uh, Mateo Ungulele and getting some type of interior pass rush, getting some big bodies that can get upfield. We saw that lacking in that game in the second half, predominantly for USC. They got some shots here and there on Cameron rising when they weren't called penalties, um, but they just did not get a consistent pass rush on him. And obviously, Dalton Kincaid posterizing USC. That's where you start to see where USC is just lacking a bit from a personnel standpoint. When you can throw you know, men at one guy and you can't take that one guy away, it's because you don't have guys of that caliber on your defense. You can't defend it. They, they threw yeah, Jalen Smith at him as a, as a nickel. That's not really a great matchup for Jalen Smith. They don't have any linebackers that can, that can cover a tight end like that, which USC is going to have to be very aware of because you're going to have a guy named Michael Mayer, uh, who plays for Notre Dame, who might be the country's best tight end coming up in, for Notre Dame here in a, in a few weeks. Um, Notre Dame will throw that ball to him oh, 40 times. <laughs> they will just throw the ball to him over and over and over again. And he's a guy that will uh, – he'll make Dalton Kincaid look like a, a fifth-round draft pick. So USC is going to have to do something. They're going to have to make some type of adjustment, uh, whether it's um, you know trying to bracket or, or do some type of coverage. But they are lacking personnel-wise in uh, the linebacker department. And, and a lot of people on the boards were calling for Eric Gentry to play man up against Kincaid. The problem is USC is using Eric Gentry as a Mike linebacker. It's a very odd fit, 6'6", 210 pounds, playing Mike linebacker, but that's where they have him playing. And so you cannot vacate the middle of your field 
and throw your middle linebacker out there on the slot or in the edge of the box to go play one-on-one against the tight end uh, and leave the middle of the field open. It just doesn't work. So you, you'd almost have to switch Eric Gentry with Shane Lee or do something like that uh, mid-game, and that's just going to cause more problems than it's going to solve. So uh, from that standpoint, that's where you start to look at Tackett Curtis uh, and you know him coming in next spring and potentially being a guy that could push for a starting job at middle linebacker. He is fast enough and strong enough, I think, at this point where he could play as a true freshman early in the season. That's going to allow you to bump Eric Gentry out to outside linebacker, which I think is ultimately his best position. I mean, I think kudos to Alex Grinch for not throwing him uh, on the edge of the defense and just making him another stand-up rusher because we talked about that in the offseason. You know, he can do so much more than that. But I think you want him to be a Sam. You want him to be a Will. You want him to be able to be a little more active in the passing game. And you can get a little more exotic with your outside linebackers than you can your Mike linebacker. Your Mike linebacker has to fit in the middle. You cannot let, you know, Cameron Rising just run quarterback sneaks for 10 yards of pop right at the middle because your Mike linebacker is over on the hash mark. So maybe with uh, with, with Tackett Curtis and, and, and you know, you got Braden Shelby there as well as another player we project as being a guy who's going to make some He's going to make some noise next year as a true freshman. He's a little more of an outside guy, but he's an outside guy that has a legitimate agility and athleticism that he can play as a linebacker as well. So now you got a big body out there. You know, you got a 240-pound guy at 6'5", 6'4", who can play the RPO and he can make some plays and he can also rush the passer. So there's going to be some dynamics thrown in there, but certainly USC's got to get better on the defensive line. They've got to get some talent interjected into that interior defensive line. Uh, Mateo Ngolele is one guy. Maybe they're able to get some other guys that, uh, you know, we're not really hearing about maybe some official visits or something down the line. And maybe, maybe you can go on the portal and, Again, you're going to try to ride Tuli Tuipolotu uh, as your catalyst for, hey, this is the blueprint. You know, we, 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 you know, Sean Nua had some really good players at Michigan. You could come in here, step in right away, and bam, you know, you can be a first round pick. But you got to go after the right guys. You cannot go into the portal and just pluck some guys away from Alabama. Let's just talk about this Alabama. Has Alabama not come on the right side of this whole thing with the transfer portal or what? I mean, they just seem to get great players out of the portal and just dump all of their dead weight. I mean, how many guys have gone from Alabama, transferred to Alabama, and done anything anywhere else? Like, has, has anybody come to mind to you? Uh, Ishmael Sopcher? <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> Shane Lee might be the best player the best case out of, out of uh, Alabama and actually contributed. And, and I mean, I'm sure there's some players that have done some things here and there, but Alabama has been on the, uh, on the right side of this thing with, with guys like Gibbs and uh, um, Henry Toto, uh, some players that have really helped them. And um, they got the receiver uh, over from Ohio state that ended up being a guy. I mean, it's crazy. So yeah, you can't just take um, a bunch of guys that, oh, you know, he went to Alabama. Or, oh, Do we count Jalen Hurts? Jalen Hurts, yeah, but that was before the portal, wasn't it? It Wasn't he actually transferred before they actually had the transfer portal? So we're talking like transfer portal era. Yeah, They're just, you know, getting the guys that are that are right away guys that can play. I think he got a waiver um, 
like Justin Fields got to play at Ohio State, but I don't think he was a portal guy. But that would, yeah, that would be, you know, by far, you know, the most successful uh, guy that's left from from Alabama. You you have to evaluate that though. You can't fall in love with oh he's he's you know he was a guy that was Alabama and he was in the three deep. So that equals that's the kind of nonsense that the Clay Helton staff did with some of their three stars in East Texas. You know, they'd sit there and go, wow, you know, it's Texas football and it's so great. And uh, they love it so much that, you know, a three-star in Texas is like a five-star in California. That's baloney, dude. you got to go and evaluate these players for what they are, not for what their their profile says they are. So, yeah, he's got to be careful there. You know, with offensive tackles, defensive tackles, you don't want to take on guys that have, like, you know, bad injuries or something. That's something that they got to really look at. They brought in Jake Smith. They brought in some guys like Sopcher that – never played at USC because they were hurt. So that's something that they've got to do a better job vetting. That's not on this staff. You know, that wasn't this staff that brought those players in, but just in general, you got to be careful and not just bringing guys from programs that are successful. And, you know, they didn't play there and just, you know, hope that, well, you know, the potential that they had coming out of high school, it all of a sudden uh, blossoms when they get to USC. Remember, it doesn't always work out though. I mean, just ask Elias, uh, Elias Ricks that. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's true. Elijah Ricks has been one of those guys that just, you know, kind of uh, he's just gotten picked over because Alabama's like a first got round guy and just like not playing at all. That's yeah. yeah. And we'll see. I mean, the injury might be able to redshirt or what have you. I'm not sure the whole story behind that. But yeah, certainly he would have been much better staying at uh, LSU. That might be the one guy that just hasn't really worked out very well for them. Um, but yeah, there's, they've had a lot of guys that, uh, have they've got out of the portal and they turn out to be starters for them. So, you know, Nick Saban, he's uh he's he he's he's been very successful for a reason. They're doing their homework there at Alabama. They're not just picking up a bunch of bums. Well, speaking of Alabama, I think that's a good place to close the door on this uh Utah loss and kind of your your thoughts on it and we can kind of turn to other scores from around college football in week seven, one of them being the big Alabama-Tennessee game, that big Alabama-Tennessee result. They had that game playing up on the Rice-Eccles uh, Jumbotron uh, pregame, and then all of a sudden everyone broke out into cheers and celebrating for the villain that is Alabama losing 52-49 on a former, on the leg of a former USC kicker, Chase McGrath, nailing the game-winning field goal to lift the Volunteers over uh, the Crimson Tide. I believe the first time since 2006, which just seems uh, remarkable. Uh, but that was kind of one of the bigger ones. Also, Florida State took another loss. Clemson surviving. And like they always do, I feel like that's the the blueprint for Clemson is just to look like crap, and then suddenly pull it out in the end. Uh, that's what they did this past weekend, 34-28 over Florida State. And then the big kind of shocker that I saw on the scoreboard, I was like, is that real? I thought it was like a soccer score or something, not football. But Stanford, terrible Stanford, upsetting Notre Dame, 16-14 to at home for Notre Dame, just in embarrassing and uh, fighting Irish obviously you're going to be coming to the Coliseum to end the the season and USC could that could be a major recruiting weekend for them you know hosting a big team well I guess a name and only in the sense hosting a storied team like Notre Dame and a big rivalry game and should be a packed atmosphere that's a good game to bring some uh, 
kids on and see them beat down possibly on the Fighting Irish. So woof for uh, for the, the Fighting Irish losing to Stanford, which I don't believe had beaten an FBS team in like 13 tries or something like that, something ridiculous. So Gerard, anything stand out from those results? Yeah, certainly that loss to Stanford is uh, – that's smarts for Notre Dame. Uh, not a lot of head-to-head battles, but – there are a couple of players that Notre Dame has on their commit list, a pretty good commit list that USC might want to pilfer, maybe bring in on an official visit. Hey, what is he? Notre Dame playing in LA? Come on, come on over. So we've talked about a couple of players that have committed to Notre Dame that might be looking at USC. So we'll see how that goes. You know, we're not going to get um, too, too, too. I don't want to raise expectations, you know, for guys. Uh, you You're know, just leaving a little, that's a little teaser. It's, we'll it's tough. It's tough because, you know, you don't want to speak out of class and you also don't want to raise expectations when it's hard to know what's really what when you're talking about committed recruits to other schools, you know, because they're going to stay quiet about it. Right. They don't really want to talk a whole lot um, until they maybe decommit. So uh, it's interesting, you know, nonetheless, that uh, Notre Dame having a, a real bad season and um, losing to Stanford is uh, a, a surprise. But um you know, USC, I think in that game, like you said, a rivalry game, Notre Dame is still a national brand. And so you bring them in, and even if they're not that great, it's still uh, probably going to present a pretty good atmosphere to bring in uh, a boatload of recruits. So I, I'm, I'm expecting probably six maybe more recruits uh, to end up taking official visits that weekend. We'll, we'll see how it shakes out. Um, again, there's going to be maybe a few guys that they bring in for the Cal homecoming game. And so we'll see how that goes as well. But uh, that's a game that certainly stands out. Florida State losing. They kind of got, you know, off to a good start this season. But now they're, they're sort of stumbling a bit. You know, it wasn't a bad game against Clemson. So you know, you've got Lucas Simmons out there, the 6'6", 300-pound offensive tackle from Clearwater, Florida, the four-star, who's uh, seen some ranking bumpings you know, going upward for him. USC brought him out on an official visit for the, the big golden hour weekend. And he committed to Florida State over USC, Tennessee, some other schools. So we'll see if, you know, maybe um, there's some more calls that go out to him. I haven't really heard much about him lately, um, you know, looking at schools or, or, or wavering from Florida State necessarily. Um, and then obviously the Tennessee-Alabama game. Um, you know, I don't know. Alabama losing, I, I guess, yeah, they are the villain. People just, you know, root against them because they've been so successful over the years. But um I don't know with everything going on with Tennessee and, and all their, uh, you know, the, the kind of improprieties and, and alleged and allegations that have floated around with uh, them recruiting and, and their NIL McDonald's uh, happy meals and all that stuff. I don't know if you can paint them as a, a Robin hood of college football because they beat Alabama, you know, <laughs> to keep these things in perspective, um, Alabama, uh, it's just like when USC was rolling and they were, you know, going to their third straight uh, national title game. It's like people just hated USC because, and you're going, well, I guess so. But man, I mean, have a, have a decent reason, you know, that you don't like USC. Well, have a decent reason for like not liking Alabama, you know, just don't do it just because they win too much. I think it's because everyone's tired of seeing Alabama, Georgia in the Pac-12 cha- or Pac-12, excuse me, SEC championship. And then we have to see it two weeks, two in two weeks Again, that's usually like a 17-13 score or something like that. Well, go and beat them. Go, go and beat them. There you go. Go and beat them. You know, I mean, listen, we we know the college football playoff has been uh, skewed a bit for the SEC. They sort of run the show there. 
but that's the fault of the other major conferences. You know, it's, it's you're asleep at the wheel. You've allowed the SEC to do certain things from a schedule standpoint and they game the system. And, uh, and you decided not to do those things. You were an idiot, you know, Larry Scott with your, you know, nine game schedules, the Pac-12 schools and all the nonsense that they did. I mean, it was all right there in front of them. They could have changed those things and, and just basically taken the blueprint from the SEC and, and manage their conference just like that. But they decided not to do that. They wanted parity. They wanted this whole thing where it was, you know, all, uh, what's the saying, uh, the, the, the rising tide floats all boats. Yeah, well. It, it rising tide boats. lifts all ships. Yeah, something like that. Until they end up on the shore and, uh, you know, they're they're in the rocks. That's that's basically how I look at that. that. That is the reason why the SEC has been able to dominate the way they have because there's been some incompetence with some of these other uh, conferences. And certainly with the Pac-12, uh, they've done that, you know. And there's a lot of SEC fans and, and understandably feel as though that the Pac-12 sort of, they piled on a bit when they went through sanctions. You know, there was absolutely no uh, defense from the, the, the conference. The conference was absolutely nowhere to be found when they were trying to appeal. Um, it was like, hey, sorry, USC. And, and, and the thought being, well, you know, it's going to help all our other schools. And all it did was just take down your flagship program. And everybody else just sort of sank more and more to a mediocre level. So, you know, you had a bunch of mediocre schools playing mediocre football against each other instead of having a school at the top that was setting the standard and forcing everybody else to get better. So, you know, that was the Larry Scott years. Who cares what happens going forward? Because USC is not going to be a part of it. It's going to be more of a a question of, you know, who else from the Pac-12 is going with USC outside of UCLA. I interjected that on the message boards this week. USC fans didn't want to hear about Utah being a, a, a possible selection or maybe a good choice or Washington. They got a little mad at me for, for even even talking about uh, Utah in that way. They were still a little salty over the loss. Salty over the loss, Gerard. You should have known better. You should have known better. Now, well, I, knew better I knew better than to uh, post uh, sideline field-level highlights of the Utah game a couple days there after. There were some big plays. There were some big plays. And I got some great shots. I will not apologize for that. I will not apologize for that. I will not. Now, looking ahead, speaking of the Pac-12, a big Week 8 matchup this week as USC gets to sit back on their bye week. UCLA going all the way up to Oregon. That is a 9-10 matchup in the AP rankings. A big one for the conference. And a lot of national eyes will be on that game. There are some recruiting implications for USC USC is obviously off this week, so a lot of the local kids, California kids, they're going to be going up to that game to get a front row seat of that top 10 matchup at Austin Stadium, and it should be a good one. USC fans should be rooting for Oregon to beat to beat the Bruins. Uh, I know they dislike both of them, but Oregon beating UCLA is the easiest path to uh, USC getting back getting to the Pac-12 championship, so you got to root for Oregon, beat UCLA, and then USC handles business the rest of the way there. So should be a big one. Should be a fun one, Gerard. Yeah, there's enough football left where I think you can flip a coin as to, you know, what school you want to root for as a Trojan fan. I, I know at face value it would be better if Oregon beats UCLA because UCLA is currently undefeated, but 
You know, I, I think Oregon could lose a game still that they shouldn't lose. Uh, I don't think they're good enough of a team that they're just going to roll through everybody they have in front of them. Well, they should have lost to Washington, Washington State. Washington State, exactly. Washington State cooped down their legs and ended up losing that game. UCLA is actually pretty good. UCLA, you know, Chip Kelly's a wily little guy. You know, he's, he's, he's trolling those UCLA fans for the first three years of his contract. And then uh, when – Matters, and we're talking contracts extensions, and the UCLA uh, fan base has already got their hot board going. You know, how, how can, you know, it's going to be so great when we have this coach or that coach, and we get rid of Chip Kelly, and all of a sudden Chip Kelly turns around and goes undefeated this point in the season, and it's just, uh, I, I almost feel like he's done it purposely. You know, it's just, I, I didn't understand how, long he, con. how was he so bad? You know, to start, it just seemed like he just didn't really have a sense of urgency. He just was like, hey, you know what, you know, we're just going to get better. And they were terrible and they were terrible and they were terrible. And, you know, they're paying them all that money and, and UCLA fans are going crazy. And now it's like, uh, you know, I don't see any hot boards uh, trying to replace him. And the thing is, you got to think on the other side, there's they've been so hostile to him. And there's been such lack of support when they've been down. You know, somebody comes calling. Nebraska comes calling, and he's at the end of his contract with UCLA. Does he not jump ship and decide to go somewhere else? I mean, I'm not putting it out there like I've heard that, but it's one of those things where he's seen the uh, the ugly side of the UCLA fan base, no pun intended. Um, so the lack of support and the empty stadiums and everything, and now everybody's like, oh, if they win this game against Oregon, all of a sudden you're going to see probably another 25,000 people, 30,000 people in that Rose Bowl. And it's like, oh, now you want to support us. Now I'm a, I'm a genius. Um, and he's done it really without recruiting the same way as most schools recruit. I mean, they've been kind of aloof with recruiting top uh, athletes. And then I said it last year, and, and I said it really kind of the first year before he actually coached a, a game. Chip Kelly is one of those guys that believes in his system 100%. And he doesn't care if he doesn't land a four-star receiver or a, or a five-star quarterback. He's just going to go get guys that he thinks can run his system, and he's going to run his system. It's taken him this long to get the right guys in place, a lot of guys that are not necessarily highly ranked guys that are playing well for them, and uh, and he's just going to keep on doing that. So it's interesting uh, to see how this is all sort of played out, and um, you know that's going to be a tough game in a tough environment. It's the first time they've really played anybody, uh, certainly on the road. And, you know, we thought the Washington win was a big win. Turns out it wasn't. You know, Washington's really just not that good. Um, the the win against Utah was a good win at home. But, again, Utah, not quite the same team um, on the road. And they were probably looking a little bit to the USC game at home. Uh, this is going to be a different type of environment and a different game uh, that they're going to play. against a much more talented team that they played. You know, Oregon, regardless of, of how good of a team they are, they still have talent. You know, they still – made out like thieves in the night when Clay Helton and that coaching staff was just falling asleep at certain positions. And they were getting a bunch of talent away from uh, Southern California and the region as a whole and a lot of playmakers. And so you've got good talent and good depth up there at Oregon. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, going forward, you know, are they able to, to, to really put something together? Even this game, I, I don't know if we're necessarily going to see what Oregon ends up being. You know, Clay Helton in 2016, they got to the Rose Bowl. So, you know, it's one of those things that, and I always say this when it comes to culture and it comes to like the long term. And this is why losing at Utah is not a big deal for USC. Um, you know, this was a team that we're thinking, you know, probably wins eight, maybe nine games this season. There's certainly 
uh, going to probably eclipse that. It's a, it's a, it's a, I don't want to say it's a marathon, not a sprint, but it's certainly a, a good two to three years before you start to really look at these games and look at these performances and start to make these calls as to, oh, you know, are they right? Are they running the right defense to be able to be a college football playoff team? Are they, you know, do they, do they run the ball enough on offense? They, you start critiquing, you know, and, and we certainly we have to do that to some extent. That's our jobs to, to look at the team under a microscope, but you do always try to keep the bigger picture in mind and bigger picture wise from a perspective standpoint, they're way, way, way ahead of schedule at USC. And so I think that um, anybody who follows the team and sort of knows what personnel standpoint they were uh, from last year and the year before and going forward. And, you know, despite all the transfers and people tell you, Oh my gosh, I got so many transfers are completely different team. Yes, but there's hurdles and there's, all kinds of challenges with that in and of itself. And this coaching staff has been able to put it together. So, yeah, I think with, with all these teams, you're, you're seeing now UCLA, you know, really on the back end of Chip Kelly's contract, what, what he wants to do there and, and what he can do to a program. But we don't know that about Oregon or USC right now. Like I said, should be a fun one, should be a good one. And I can't wait to watch that and not have to stress about covering a game on Saturday. So we'll see how that plays out. Gerard. We have a ton of questions to get through. So can you run me through the Friday night light schedule for this coming week? Yeah, we'll just do it quickly. Uh, Oxnard is going to be playing at Pacifica, going to be playing Malachi Crawford, who's had a pretty decent year. He's dropped a little bit in the recruiting rankings, but he's had a good year. He's been playing safety and cornerback. He's one of those guys that sort of blurs the line when you start talking about how many bodies can you take at a particular position. You know, is he going to be a cornerback in college or is he going to be a safety in college right now. He's kind of doing a little bit of both. So they're going to have uh, their game against the rival Oxnard uh, up at, uh, I think they're playing at Pacifica this weekend. Uh, Brentwood is going to go play Rio Hondo prep at care park in Irwindale. And that's going to be uh, Ryan McCullough, who again, we talk about the H back position in USC kind of keep an eye on Ryan McCullough there. 6'2, 235 pounds playing at a very, very, very small level of uh, competition. Um, that's kind of a little bit of an issue. It's one of those things that uh, I think I'm um, going to take a long, hard look at, but you have to kind of d- decide whether you're really going to pull the trigger on a guy that plays against, you know, I think it's like one or two levels up from eight-man football. Um, Lutheran, Orange Lutheran is going to play at St. John Bosco. St. John Bosco, you know, trying to round out their schedule here. Trinity League, closing out, they got two more games. They should overpower Lutheran uh, by a few touchdowns. Uh, Sarah's going up to Alamany. Um Orange uh, High School, which is not Orange Lutheran, but Orange High School, where Jet White, 2025 cornerback commit for USC, is going to be playing Costa Mesa at El Medina High School in Orange. Los Alamitos is going to play Huntington Beach at Veterans Stadium in Long Beach. Los Al should win that one easily. Huntington Beach, not the school that Edison was. Edison was the kind of the big game on uh, their league schedule this year. So they were able to win that game 52-27 last week. Uh, Long Beach Poly going to be playing at Compton. That's going to be another more league blowout for them. Losinger is going to be at Morningside. Uh, Losinger has that freshman whose name escapes me at the moment who got a scholarship offer 2026, I believe, yep. uh, at USC. Um, he's going to be playing. What's What's his name again? I believe it's Mola, Samu Mola, I think. Mola? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Samu uh, Mo- Mola, yeah. Yeah, good-looking kid. Um, Moala, Moala, sorry. Mo- Moala, yeah. Good-looking kid, uh, freshman linebacker. So, um, you know, we still want to be able to see him in person. We'll, we'll see. Maybe maybe that happens this week. 
maybe not, you know, just sort of depends. Uh, Modern day is going to be going up to Santa Margarita, play at Sandalback College. That should be a, a, a pretty easy time for Modern day. And um, another game out in Arizona to kind of keep an eye on is Red Mountain uh, playing at Queen Creek. Uh, USC commit uh, just coming off a of bye week. Uh, Jacoby Lane playing for Red Mountain. He's jumped up a bit in the rankings, uh, having a, a really good year. And uh, Queen Creek has a couple guys, a couple underclassmen that USC is looking at. So um, that's a pretty good uh, matchup for them. Uh, we'll see what happens there. We might be at that game covering that as well. So that's kind of uh, the games that are pertinent to USC football fans this week at the high school level. Uh, another packed schedule, and I will be out somewhere. You will be out somewhere. We'll have multiple people out somewhere. So we'll talk about that next episode in Friday Night Lights. But, Gerard, time to get back on the question beat and take some questions from the fans. Again, a lot of people send me questions every week. I'm sorry to those that I did not get to last week because we didn't really put that announcement out. So I still got a bunch of questions. I didn't really want to stack two weeks of questions, so I'm only really doing questions that were asked for this week. So I apologize. If you want to get a question you asked two weeks ago answered, just resend it and I'll get it in for the next show. And if you got it, if you you need that email, I got it right here. It's uh, podcast at uscfootball.com. Just make sure you put 10K, uh, Hurricane, the composite, the recruiting podcast. Or you can put, you know, cilantro boys. Cilantro es cantante. Cilantro es muy famoso. Cilantro es el hombre con el queso del diablo. That's bad. That's so bad. Why is that bad? <laughs> He's laughing. <laughs> oh, that was, I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, you're damn right. You weren't expecting that. So, yeah, for the cilantro boys, put it whatever you want. Uh, maybe just do the lyrics of that song if you caught it. Uh, but, yeah, Gerard, are you ready for some <laughs> questions after that? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't know what to say. He's, well, uh, he, he's just encouraging the memes. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love the memes. Uh, Gerard, let's do an easy one for you to, to warm up. Just curious. This one comes from Roderick, uh, not Roderick Pleasant, uh, but just say normal Roderick. Uh, just curious, just curious if Gerard knows anything about Jason Thomas's recruitment, QB from Dominguez High School in Compton. God, that's before my time. I remember Jason Thomas uh, being recruited out of high school, and I want to say he was a part of the same class as Carson Palmer. I'm not a hundred percent sure on that, but I remember. I want to say he was a J. Rob commit, and then uh, Paul Hackett took over, and you know he got hurt. I think he hurt his ankle, dislocated ankle or something that he had senior year in high school, and then that kind of was a nagging injury for him at USC, and he ended up transferring and going to UNLV, and I think J. Rob was at UNLV back then, so that was before the transfer portal. Um, but a uh, big, big quarterback, kind of like Vince Young before Vince Young was Vince Young. Um, just a big, like 6'4", 6'5", 230-pound quarterback. That was back when Dominguez was was pretty good. Dominguez was a was a, was a high-level program, was probably maybe the second most talented program next to maybe Pauly in um, the, the greater L.A. area. And so Jason Thomas was a, you know, a, a bit of an athlete. Um, there's a lot of people that said, Hey man, you need to move them to tight end. Then you need to move a receiver, et cetera, et cetera, because they had, uh, 
had like Mike Van Rapp Horse there. Uh, they had Carson Palmer. Um, they had, you know, some, a little bit of depth there at the quarterback position. And um, he was just one of those athletes that at that point in college football, when you, you could run and you were a big body, you know, they tended to want to put you at another position. And I think maybe that partly was uh, what came into play with um, him transferring out, you know, maybe in, in him uh, with Paul Hackett and being a different coach. Cause I, fe- I feel like, it was John Robinson that recruited him out of high school and landed him. And then J Rob got fired and then they brought Paul Hackett. And then probably that just didn't vibe too much. And that's when he went to UNLV. So I might be misremembering a little bit. Again, it was before my time by a good amount before I was actually covering this stuff. Uh, But I did pay attention to USC recruiting and and what have you. And uh, he was like one of those big gets, one of those, like a, he was a five-star level guy. That was a year where, again, I, I want to say it was it was Carson, it was him. It was sort of a Nico Aymaileva, you know, versus uh, Malachi Nelson sort of thing. Like you had those two big-time quarterbacks in, in Southern California, and they both ended up at USC. Uh, we have a double question from D from Central Valley because he always asks double questions. And if he only asks one question, I will believe it's a fake. I believe it's a phony. So D from Central Valley – Number one, possible plan C options on the Malachi Nelson highlights. What do you that you guys have posted? Damian Henderson stands out. Do you think he can be a USC option? If Peyton Bowden doesn't flip, do you think Ethan O'Connor can be an option? And then number two, when you guys started the podcast last year, in different words, GM mentioned that if USC wins 10 or more, the sky is the limit on recruiting. It seems realistic that USC will win 10 or more. How are you guys feeling about USC's recruiting? Now, just to talk about the first, the top half of those questions, we have talked about Damian Henderson on this uh, podcast before. Big, big uh, athlete kind of prospect, uh, having a sensational senior year. It's like he's averaging like 200 yards per game. Los Al, unfortunately, does not update their their uh, max prep stats so we don't really have a good feel on his total numbers but he is running for like i said it seems like 200 yards and like three touchdowns every game so colorado state commit he is having a heck of a season i think he could you know usc could kick the tires on him you know maybe as an athlete or or maybe an h-back kind of prospect he seems to be having you know, kind of showcasing his ability. And as Gerard always mentions, you want to recruit the best senior players. And I would say Damian Henderson, one of the best senior players in SoCal, Gerard. Yeah, I think the biggest issue with him is academics. Mm-hmm. I think that's why you haven't seen UCLA or USC make a big push for him. Um, you know, I've, I've heard that they've kind of sniffed around a bit. They want to kind of see where he is academically. He transferred in from, I think, Long Beach Wilson he was at. And so that's probably the biggest hurdle that in the fact that you know, USC has two running back commits that they really like. Um, so unless there's some movement there, um, you're probably not going to see them make a push on Henderson unless there's some type of last minute sort of like, okay, epiphany, you know, the, 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 the grades are there and, and he's made up some classes, et cetera. Um, on the second question, or not the second question, but I guess the Peyton Bowen second part of the first question, uh, Peyton Bowen, the five-star safety out of uh, Denton, Texas, 
who is, uh, I believe, still committed to Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. A lot of people kind of been looking at him potentially decommitting for Notre Dame. He's looked at some other schools. I think he was at the Red River Shootout uh, a couple weeks ago to watch um, Texas obliterate Oklahoma. Oklahoma and Texas A&M have been talked about a lot publicly as schools that he's kind of leaning towards. And, and if he was going to decommit, those would be the two schools he would look at. But I've heard behind closed doors that you know, USC has still tried to be involved with him and, and potentially trying to get him on an official visit here, um, maybe for Cal or maybe for Notre Dame. More probably the Notre Dame game, but it's tricky because, again, you know, if he's committed to Notre Dame, it's kind of a bad look. And, you know, these kids don't want to burn any bridges or, or, or you know, kind of go against uh, some of these coaches that they have relationships with who might end up in the NFL or a draft room uh, when it comes time. So uh, in terms of if that's not a realistic or that's not a viable option for USC to be able to recruit, would they go after Ethan O'Connor? Can he be an option? Potentially, but I think with O'Connor, I think he probably wants to play more receiver. Yeah, USC has not recruited him very much. I mean, I don't want to say that they haven't at least kind of kept that body warm to some extent, but it's been real hit and miss. And when I've checked in over there at Los Al, it just doesn't seem like they're super, super interested. And again, I mean, for me, I just don't know if that's the position that you need to go. And if you're not really sold and you feel like that's a player that can come and, and, and play for us and, and get into the starting lineup, you know, it's sort of a standard of like, okay, where do we see this particular player, uh, you know, coming in from a contribution standpoint? What do we project from a production standpoint? It's got to be pretty high. And that's where, you know, they offer Tyler Scott, the 6'2", 185-pound uh, safety out of uh, Georgia, three-star. He's one of the lower-rated recruits that USC has on their board at safety, uh, according to 24-7 Sports. So, you know, do you go across country and try to recruit that guy versus Ethan O'Connor? I mean, maybe Tyler Scott's just had great film, and he looks like he's going to be a great player senior year. But you you have to make those decisions and you have to make the decision as to whether you take anybody, because another thing to sort of interject into that conversation of recruiting safety specifically is USC has done a pretty damn good job getting guys out of the portal at the defensive back position. I mean, they get Makai Blackman, they get uh, Jacoby Covington, um, they get Chris Thompson, who's now a linebacker. Um, they got uh, Bryson Shaw. They've been able to get some guys, Latrell McCutcheon, out of the portal that have been pretty highly thought of uh, defensive backs. So it's not a position, unlike defensive tackle or left tackle, where you had a need and you haven't been able to develop or cultivate very good options. Defensive back is not that position. So, yeah, again, I'm a little sort of on the fence as to whether USC really needs to go hard on anybody at that position that they're not completely sold on not completely sold on and the second part of that question or the second question is about usc reaching that 10 win mark and we did talk about this uh earlier in this podcast's uh lifespan and about how if usc gets that 10 that 10 wins you know gerard you mentioned it you know four wins doubling it to eight that's good Seven wins, that's not that sexy. Nine wins, looking pretty good. Ten wins, double digit, that's looking great. And recruiting as a result of that feels great as well. I feel really good about USC recruiting. And I think, you know, this loss 
isn't the best, but they're still six and one, and they've got three really easy games coming up. They're going to be able to put up some points and there beat are down. no easy games in conference, Chris. There are that no is easy. that is true, but I will just say one of those teams is Colorado, so I will beg to differ on that point at least. <laughs> I will beg to differ on that point, at least. But hey, in the Clay Helton years, an easy Colorado win turned out to be thirty-eight twenty-four. There, there you go, there you go. But we're not in that era anymore. But I feel really good about USC legitimately challenging for those double-digit wins, and as a result, USC. You know, by the time that Notre Dame game comes around, as Gerard talked about, you know, potential for a uh, big official visitor group or compared to other weeks, but they could really have some big momentum coming up, especially with the kind of guys that are left on their board that they're trying to hit. They've got to win these games, uh, look good doing it, you know, play better defensively, and you, yeah, you get into that 10-11 uh, rarefied air for the season, and I do. I think that there's potential to maybe flip some guys and get to a place where – you know, you get into that top 10 and you, you know, keep close to the top five. I, I still believe that. I think um, with USC, yeah, when you're winning like that, I think that, uh, as I said, yeah, sky's the limit, so to speak. Uh, now, you know, NIL deals and whatever with standing, because that's a different wild card that, you know, we're, we're still seeing that evolve. We're, we're still trying to figure out how much that plays. Um, you know, we saw what Texas A&M did last year, only winning seven games. Um, so we're going to see how much that impacts who goes where and what have you. And, and if uh, some of these guys that committed early during the summer, if any of these guys are going to decommit, we've seen some decommits from uh, the summer. So, yeah, I, I, I still think that I still think that, you know, you get to double digit wins and there's just the potential that you grab a couple guys that uh, you certainly didn't think that USC could get at the beginning of the year. Uh, speaking of flips, as you mentioned, we have a question about that. Chris and Hurricane, you talked before about recruits sometimes being hesitant to commit. Then after the first player does, it opens it up to others. Does the same apply for flips? Does the Elijah Page, uh, Elijah Page flip make it easier for other players to do it too? Thanks, Eric in Duck Country. Shout out to Eric for always asking us a question every week. I don't this is just me personally, Gerard. You probably have the right answer, but I don't think it applies for flips because flips are a little bit not not harder, but like they're harder to go through with, and they have to you have to take a little bit more time thinking about it when you're when you're like on the verge of committing. You know, you've thought about it for a while, and you you just want to see that little thing to push you over the edge and having a, a big time guy jump in the class makes you go, Oh, well he's in, I want to jump too. flipping is a little bit different because every school kind of feels different or every school situation and all those commitments feel different. Maybe it's a guy who's about to get pushed out of a class. Maybe it's a guy who's highly sought after and he's being courted by other big schools and his team he's committed to stinks right now. It's similar to what Elijah page did. I just think flips happen there's so many different uh variables for flipping and and i you don't really see those true jump from school a to school b until like the very end of the process like in december signing day those kind of deals so i i think it's different i think with flips yeah there's more weight 
mm-hmm. on the shoulders of that particular recruit because he's committed and you know there's going to be backlash to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. And so that doesn't really exist when you're just open and you're just hesitant about committing somewhere. Uh, you've got a bunch of different schools pulling you one direction. You haven't actually commit to any one coaching staff. And I think the hard thing. You're free is, and single. You're free and single. You could do. Yeah. I, I mean, having gone through, you know, certain like being recruited from a job standpoint, right. As a writer, I've gone through that where you've got various different people calling you and it's just tough. You know, you have relationships with people and it's hard to say no. And you don't like saying no. You can only say yes to one person. you got to say no to multiple people. So I think from that standpoint, when you're committed already, it's just harder to say no to that coaching staff that you've developed a rapport with, a relationship with. Obviously, they're going to try their best to talk you out of it in most situations, at least. I mean, if it's a situation where they just there's not a lot to say, they just may say, hey, man, I understand. But uh, we still love you and we're still going to recruit you. But in other situations, it's going to be like, hey, listen, man, let me talk to your mom. <laughs> let me talk to your dad. Let me talk to your god uncle. Let me talk to somebody here. And let's think about this. Let's not be emotional. Let's not be impulsive, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's uh, it's a little more difficult to make that decision. In terms of the the timing of it all, you know, the Elijah Page uh, decommitment was was interesting in terms of how it happened. It doesn't usually happen that way. Usually, you know, off season, you'll see it happen. You'll see some decommits maybe right before the summer visits and then a kid commits, you know, to some other school. But to have the decommit and then a week later, basically, uh, to commit to another school, rival school in the middle of the season, that is that is not as common. And um, we'll, we'll see what happens at the end of the year as we get closer because what everybody has already forgotten about, you know, every year everybody always forgets about the coaching carousel and how crazy stuff gets in November. It's just like, I don't know if it's insanity or what, but it's like this short-term memory loss of college football fans that there's going to be a coach that leaves some school to go somewhere else that nobody saw coming. There's going to be somebody fired. There's going to be assistant coaches that are going to leave and go to other schools. And all of that USC for the past, I don't know how many years, five, six years has been on the wrong side of. It's the coaching instability, which I've talked about this before, stability and certainty within the coaching staff and sort of the philosophy and the trajectory, what's happening with this program, that plays a big part, especially with out-of-state recruiting. You want to get a top-rated recruit to come from the other side of the country to come play for you. You've got to have that coaching staff in place where they feel good about that coaching staff. And USC is one of the more stable places that there is. Once Lincoln Riley starts really winning and USC starts getting those elite games, you'll hear a lot of stuff about him going to the NFL. The Cowboys job will come up again. And that'll be other schools trying to put that out there, trying to create some instability. But, you know, that just will go as far as how much uh, Lincoln Riley entertains those offers. But right now, I mean, he's here for the long haul and the coaching staff for the large part is here for the long haul. And that makes it a lot easier to recruit those kids. And so when it comes to flips and everything, we get to that coaching carousel and we get into November and you start to see Thanksgiving on the horizon and a lot of crazy stuff can happen. And as I said before last week, you know, with that porthole window opening up, that's also going to impact your board. You're going to start looking and seeing who's out there. And all of a sudden, hey, man, there's a guy out there that we think can contribute to us next year. He could step in and be a starter and be a guy. Well, that changes our board a little bit at that position. All of a sudden, now we we don't need to go after another safety. We don't need to go after another cornerback. We don't need to go after another linebacker, Russian, et cetera. 
Uh, we got a guy that uh, we're, we're pretty comfortable with. We think he's going to make an impact for us right away. He's played college football. He's a good player. You, As USC becomes a bit more of a commodity from the standpoint of what they produce on the field, particularly offensively, you're going to see their ability to go get uh, Jordan Addison. More often than you're going to go and take a waiver on a guy and hope he's a good football player. And that's what that USC is going to have to start to do on the defensive side of the ball. Go after the guys that are like Bolitnikoff winners and that are that are Outland Trophy winners and are guys that are maybe at a program that's a mid-major or a smaller program, maybe even a, a Division three program or what have you, and go pilfer those guys that – don't have questions with injuries. They're, they, you know, they're not disgruntled because they're fourth on the depth chart at Clemson. Go after the guys that are actually contributing to some football programs and don't have a bunch of question marks about them. And that's when you're going to have, you know, later in the year when that porthole window opens up, which I think is like January or excuse me, December fifth. You know, that's that's maybe going to change some things in terms of when we talk about wants and needs and what the high school football. Uh, recruiting board is going to look like when you get to early signing day, which is like December 15th, 16th. Question from Alberto. In recent memory, USC has had trouble recruiting the top talent from St. John Bosco. They missed out on Wyatt Davis in 2020, 2017, excuse me, Jaden Woodby in 2018, Trent McDuffie in 2019, and Ernest Green in the 2022 cycle. In that same time frame, however, USC has had tremendous success recruiting the top talent from modern day. Has this been due to the staff at St. John Bosco influencing their players to consider looking elsewhere for better development? I ask this because Bosco's 2023 and 2024 classes have many priority targets for for Lincoln Riley's staff. Now, I will say, just from my perspective as someone who has covered St. John Bosco for a while, I just want to point out that modern day has been a lot more successful for a lot longer. They have been a traditional national power for quite some time. And US, a USC pipeline school, USC has recruited modern day for decades. Now, St. John Bosco is the new kid on the block in terms of national prowess. They were not a good football program in in the years you know, prior to – the 2010s or 2013. I moved here in 2013 and I started St. John Bosco covering St. John Bosco because the beat writer who was covering St. John Bosco at the time did not want to deal with all the antics that was going on at St. John Bosco in terms of their media stuff. So that's why I was thrown into that beat. And my time here in Southern California matches St. John Bosco's sort of rise to prominence. They covered their first CIF championship team, that national championship team in 2013, excuse me. So St. John Bosco is a relatively new power. Modern day has been a power for quite some time in USC. And, and USC has recruited them for a lot, lot longer. And modern day has seen USC be good. You, St. John Bosco and I have sort of the same uh, – we've seen USC through kind of the same lens when they weren't really – the USC that a lot of people remember, you know, they, they, they lived through the Clay Helton era. They lived, they lived through the the struggles of the Sarkeesian era and all that. And USC wasn't very good point blank. And there were other programs around the country that went into St. John Bosco and had more cachet in recruiting those kids. So I think it, in terms of modern day is a traditional USC pipeline school. And that has always played into 
the kids that they recruit out of there. It's something that we've talked about with those kids multiple times, just being a pipeline school, same thing we do with, you know, Sarah and Long Beach Poly, which is starting to get back into being a, a school that produces talent. But St. John Bosco hasn't really had that history of being recruited by USC when USC was recruiting like USC. I said a lot of words there, but I think you got my point in that final part, Gerard. Word salad, but there are some cherry tomatoes in there. And I think Mm -hmm. first and foremost, uh, modern day is in Orange County. And Orange County has always sort of been USC's backyard for recruiting. Um, I think, you know, USC was a conservative school. I don't know if you would describe them as a conservative school, but Orange County, more conservative area of Southern California. And so you had a lot of boosters and you had a lot of alums down in Orange County. So Orange County, like you said, going way back, you know, even when I was playing high school football, modern day was a good high school football program. Mm -hmm. And St. John Bosco has been more recent. And I think you make a great point in terms of, you know, their, their lens for USC, their frame of reference is the Clay Helton years for the most part, some Sarkeesian, uh, they've seen a lot of instability at USC and they've seen a lack of player development. And it's been flat out, you're going to go there and maybe you, you end up being a, a drafted football player and, and you go in the fifth round or sixth round or maybe you're an you know, undrafted signee um, as opposed to some of these other programs coming in in Clemson and Ohio State that have been producing a ton of you know, first round picks and NFL draft picks overall. So yeah, I, I, there's a lot less loyalty there. And in terms of the alums and the connection, I mean, Bruce Wallinson went to USC, played running back at USC, I believe. So um, that's just uh, apples and oranges in terms of the history uh, and the pipeline that goes to. Now you can make that argument with Sarah. It's like, why was he, and Sarah um, such a, a great pipeline school for USC? I mean, Coach Altenberg went to UCLA. I know that pains a lot of Bruin fans because, I mean, USC was just monopolizing all the talent out of Sarah. I mean, you had T. Martin there. T. Martin basically posted up at Sarah, and he was a guy that that got some first-round picks and uh, was able to get some guys into the draft and was a great recruiter, and that was it. That was, you know, Adore Jackson and um, George Farmer and Robert Woods and Marquise Lee, uh, et cetera. And so – uh, that's really why they were able to recruit Sarah so well. But, um, yeah, I think with St. John Bosco, it's just been one of those things where, you know, these kids, it's not like they've gone to schools where they're, they're not schools that are winning. They're not colleges that are winning. I mean, they went to Clemson. Clemson won a national championship. And you get um, DJ Ungalale and um, blinking off the top of my head, the wide receiver that's there, number 80. Um, o Collins. Bo Collins, yeah, Bo Collins, um, and uh, and a bunch of the guys that went to Ohio State because Ohio State was winning football games. So it's not like they left to go to you know competing schools from the standpoint of like mediocre results on the field and producing talent. They they went because the grass was really greener on the other side in terms of getting guys to the NFL draft and winning championships. Well put, and thank you for validating me, Gerard, in my point. Now we have a question from Drew for Chris and Hurricane. In light of SC's first and hopefully only loss of the season, I can't help contemplating the thought that a mobile quarterback and an above-average tight end are the two most nightmarish matchups on the offensive side of the ball in college football. Does SC have the players at tight end to exploit opposing defenses? If they do, is it just a matter? Is it just a matter of so many options that the tight end position is at the bottom of the pecking order? 
you kind of alluded to that, Gerard. Yeah, like, I think it. I think it is to some extent. I think they've got good players at tight mm-hmm. end. I mean, I Josh Paulo is a former. I believe he was an Army All American, or he was an Under Armour All American. No, yeah, he was. He was he and four star guy. And Lake McCree, we he flashed some big playability down the field last season before he earned that red shirt. Just haven't I? I thought he would have a bigger role, a bigger downfield threat, and that hasn't happened. And Jude Wolf, I'm very high on. He's just been injured. Malcolm Epps is a guy that played receiver mostly in high school and went to Texas and then left Texas to, to go to USC. We've heard a lot of good things about from not just this staff, but the prior staff. They talked about him uh, every practice, and we haven't seen a lot of consistency from that standpoint. But again, when they throw to him, he's pretty open. Um, <laughs> you know, I think part of it, and this goes towards, you know, how much are they running the ball? How committed are they running the ball? This is an RPO offense, and, and there's a lot of calls at the line of scrimmage, and I think Lincoln Riley puts a lot of trust in the Caleb Williams. He's just a sophomore. Um, how many games does he have under his belt? 13 games? The 14 games? 12 yeah, he games? Just, I think it's 14, I think. Yeah. So, you know, he, he's, he's got some, some, some learning, I think, still to do as to, you know, what you take as opposed to uh, what the uh, defense is going to give you. And I think with the tight end positions, it's just a little bit more of a red zone position for them right now uh, because you're going to get those touchdowns, but you're not necessarily getting those scores. Um, when you're going to be, you know, playing between the twenties. And so you don't see them target the tight end very much, but they've got some talent. Do they have a a Deuce Robinson type of player? No, not really. Do they have, uh, you know, a a Nicholas Harbor? Nobody does. If you're going to put that guy at tight end or even like a hybrid tight end position, you know, nobody has that guy. If he can catch the football, he's a complete mismatch. Now in terms of what are the most difficult things to defend as a defense? Is it a mobile quarterback and a tight end? I think a mobile quarterback and a big receiver make it very difficult. Um, Certainly a really good offensive line and a really good running back are going to be hell to be able to defend as well. It just depends on your personnel defensively. You know, if you're better team up front, you're bigger up front, then you're not going to worry so much about the run. But if you're one of those teams and you're playing against a Bryce Young, a guy that's really mobile and able to get outside the pocket, and gash you here and there with runs, and then you have good receivers downfield, that's difficult to defend because you never know when that quarterback is going to tuck and run and do what Caleb Williams did against Utah in that first quarter on that first drive where it looked like they were going to be you know, going out. They weren't going to be able to score on that first drive. They had a third and long, and he just kept the ball, and he ran for, what, 40 yards or something like that, the big run. That's, that's really difficult uh, to guard and when – you also have to acknowledge that he may decide to stop and throw that ball downfield. So now you're coming up to try to stop that run, and all of a sudden he pops the ball downfield, and that's an easy score for them. So, yeah, you know, from that standpoint, it's very difficult, uh, whether it's a tight end or just a really good receiver like Jordan Addison. I do think, again, if we're going to try to criticize or we're going to look critically at least at what USC hasn't done offensively, which is hard to do because they've been very good offensively this season. In terms of Caleb Williams, I would say got to be a little more decisive running the ball. I would say that with all the USC ball carriers. I think they are laterally moving and looking to get out of bounds and looking to do things when they just need to go ahead and and either slide or dive, get upfield. You you see plays where they're almost looking like they're going to take a really bad hit because there's just a little bit of indecisiveness as to – what you want to do or sometimes holding onto the ball a little too long because you're trying to make that big play downfield when you could potentially maybe dump the ball off quicker in the play to a receiver or to a running back. So 
that's definitely something that USC's got to address during the bye week. Um, just being a little more decisive, uh, methodical with their play calling and not maybe, you know, trying to make the big play downfield so much. Um, but again, you know, in terms of running the ball, maybe that's on Caleb. He just, you know, sees that defense and he knows what he can do. He has confidence in his guys. And he's like, man, I know I can get 16 yards. I can get 20 yards on this play because I see the coverage instead of just getting six yards as a run. But those runs later in the game and later in the season, you know, they, they, they tend to help your offense. You tend to put more punishment on the defense. And by the fourth quarter, sometimes that starts to pay off a lot, like you saw in the Washington State game. Cilantro and Seaboy, I think we are all thrilled at the depth of the 2023 O-line recruiting class. With potential departures the next two seasons, who, if any, of the 2023 class are potential com- contributors in 2023 or 2024? Starters, question mark. I'm curious if you would be willing to project starting offensive lines for next year and the first year in the Big Ten. Any chance Coach Riley makes a move for Logan Brown transferring out of Wisconsin? Love the podcast. Go as long as you want. Adam in Milwaukee, SC class of 2001. Just very quickly on the Logan Brown, the former, I believe he was a five-star or at least top 50. One of the top offensive tackles in that class. He is leaving under some some disciplinary reasons. I believe he struck a teammate at practice, and that's why he is bounced. Obviously, you would need to do your homework, and that's not, you know, when you're building a cohesive locker room, that's not something that's going to look great. They would have to do their homework. I, I haven't heard anything about that, but I wouldn't be surprised if they at least looked. But, you know, it doesn't look great that you have that, that sort of uh, chemistry issue. And Lincoln Riley and the staff have done a really good job of picking the right guys to come in through the transfer portal and have built a really good culture and team chemistry as a result. Now for some projections, I would say the top three guys would be the two guards, Alani Noah, Amos Talalele, and Elijah Page. Those would be my top three guys that could pop, that could contribute early for this out of this class and specifically the guards because USC's guard depth is very, very poor. Now, I think tackle depth is also poor, but at least there's a possibility that you have Corlin Ford and Jonah Monheim back next season. Those guys have multiple years of starting uh, starts under their belts. So in 2023, if you get both of those guys, you got a left tackle and a right tackle. You could have Justin Dietrich come back because his his future is going to be at the center at the NFL position. So. When Brett leaves, you know, Justin Dietrich, who was recruited as a center, can just come back, stabilize that offensive line from the middle, and you just really got to figure out those guard spots. Now, I'm not saying both of those guys are going to start, but I'm saying those are guys you want to try to develop as quickly as possible because that depth is very, very bad at the guard position. So you do have Cooper Lovelace, who, you know, is the Juco transfer you're hoping By the time next year, he can be a guy that steps up to one of those guard spots and maybe not lean on a freshman. But I would expect both of those freshmen to be backups and maybe one of them, like an Alani Noah, who I believe is projected for left guard and Amos for right guard. So whatever the case, I think your best case is you're hoping Cooper Lovelace is ready to start next season. And then maybe Gino Quinones for one of those guard spots. But, you know, I would hope I think they would hope that they can get those guys ready to be starters at some point down the 2023 class 
or sorry, 2023 season down the line, at least get them some reps to set up for 2024. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Didich because that is a bit of a domino there. You know, whether you're going to have to put in Quinones as a center or maybe he can come in and be a guard. And that's really going to happen if Didich leaves and you're going to leave, you're basically losing your two, you're losing your two starting centers and, and a guard in that way. And, and meaning with Brett Neon, he's your starting center and he's probably gone. And then you've got, I, I think Haskins. Sure he's gone because I think this is his COVID year. I think we talked about that. Um, and then you got Didich, who would be your bat, you would be your starting center with Brett Neyland uh, going more than likely. Uh, and he's your starting guard right now. So in, in essence, it's like, yeah, you, you lose both of your starting centers and you're losing a starting guard. And so Kenyonis is going to be involved there. Um, potentially Andrew Millick is a guy yeah. that's played some uh, center as well. And so we have to kind of look at him. Now, you didn't mention uh, Micah Benuelos, and I actually think Micah Benuelos probably has um, a, a shot to compete for that, that center position. Um and, and if anybody was going to start out of that group, it might actually be him. Uh, I know I, that I, mean, kind of, I was just thinking, like, if Justin comes back, he's playing center. So that was just my thinking. True. Right. And I agree with that one 100%. But if he was to leave, um, right. then, then all of a sudden that center to. position, and you're looking at, you know, who can play guard better and, and whether you want to put a freshman at center or not. But I, I think all of a sudden he he jumps in there uh, and, and is, is – probably a little more interesting of a prospect than at face value. Certainly if Justin Didich comes in, then I think uh, your thinking is, is very good. Um, Eliza page, I, I think has got the potential actually to play anywhere on the offensive line there mm-hmm. outside of maybe center. I think, you know, you need him to be able to play inside sort of like with Mason Murphy, who's a guy we've seen get some, get some reps at offensive tackle. He could be a guy that you could move down uh, on the, on, on the interior. And I think he would actually, may have a higher ceiling on the interior than at uh, off to tackle. So there's, there's a lot of movement there, I think, from that group. Um, you're very you're very comfortable with Monheim, and you're very comfortable with D-Ditch, hoping D-Ditch comes back. And Quinones has been a guy that's certainly since fall camp, uh, his stock has risen a lot with uh, the program. I mean, they've talked about him quite a bit. I think with Ford, haven't seen a lot of consistency there, seen a lot of injuries. You're a little worried about that. You know, you hope you bring in a freshman like Page or uh, potentially Lamu who can at least push him. You know, you don't want to put a, a freshman out there at left tackle. You don't want to put a freshman at right tackle. But you do want a little bit of push, a little bit of threat so Cortland Ford sort of gets focused and, and gets healthy and, and becomes the guy that, um, you know, Clay Helton thought he was going to be. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that's sort of how it goes. You know, are any of these guys – that are going to come in and they're going to play right away as true freshmen. You hope not. I mean, that's what we always say. You don't really want to put offensive linemen as true freshmen at the beginning of the season. Now we're talking about like the fifth or sixth or seventh game. Yeah, maybe, maybe, you know, you get, you get a guy like Elijah page that maybe he's ready to come in and he's got, you know, a, a couple games under his belt and uh, he looks a little more comfortable. I mean, we saw what happened with Mason Murphy when he came in against, was it Stanford was the game that he played in? where he just looked over his head and and had like two holding calls and an offside call, like back-to-back coming in for Bobby Haskins. And then we've seen him come in since, and it's like, okay, you know, 
he 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 got his cherry popped. He's ready to go. He's he's more confident. He's he's he looks good. Composed. Yeah, and he looks like he can come in and he can be a player for them. And, and we've seen him in practice play pretty well, and he looks like a guy that physically has some upside to him. And, and again, he could play right tackle, maybe play left tackle in the pinch, but I think, you know, down the line, he might end up being a, a, a good player for them on the interior. So, yeah, that's how I see that shaking out. Now, going into 2024, uh, you gotta, you're going to have some guys that are potentially portal guys as well. USC is going to lose some guys depth-wise in the portal. At that point in time, you're hoping that Eliza Page uh, can come in and be a starter for you, you know, as a sophomore. That's what you're projecting in that type of player that's a pretty high four-star level guy. Um, Michael Benuelos is probably going to have to be there as a starter or at least push for a starting yeah. job because you're for sure le- losing Didich at that point, and we'll see what happens uh, with Quinones, is he coming off a season where he actually had to be the starter at center, or is he coming off the season where he was playing guard because Didich was there? So, yeah, there's a lot of dominoes there that could fall. But I think Justin Didich coming back is going to be a pretty big one. Yeah, and I completely – my my bad. Forgot about Mason Murphy. That's definitely a guy who could be a starter in 2024 and next year as well. So that could be one of the key components to that 2024 lineup, whether he's – playing in the interior, or maybe he's ready to play on the edge at right tackle. I think, ideally, Elijah Page, even though he'd be young and maybe not have that many starts, he might be your left tackle going into that 2024 season. And as you mentioned, Micah Manning, the center position, and the guards. Maybe Cooper Lovelace has a really good breakout season 2023. Maybe he's one of your guards and then kind of fight out with one of those, those 2023 freshmen Alani Noah or Micah, or sorry, excuse me, Amos Talalele, who is just both both guys, mammoth, mammoths of humans. And, you know, you hope a year, full season in the offseason, those guys' bodies are ready to kind of, for Big Ten play, and be those guys either, either. So you could see both of those guys or maybe just one of those guys. But I think Mason Murphy could be a critical part to that 2024 lineup. Now and, we have, and the 2024 class is going to sign there in 2023. So you're going to have guys that, you know, if you're USC, you're hoping that you get Brandon Baker. You're hoping you get DeAndre Carter. Uh, going into the Big Ten, you're going to get some of those big bodies as true freshmen, which would obviously help your depth on the interior because that's where locally, or at least in the Western region, where you have all your, you know, really high-end players, it tends to be – uh, at least from this standpoint, it looks like it's mostly guys that are on the interior rather than a bunch of offensive tackles. So we have four kind of questions, but they're only asked by two people. I'm going to combine the last two together since they kind of touch on the same thing. But the first two come from Stevie. First one is a random one, but whatever happened to Joseph Lewis? Did he ever take the JUCO route? And do you guys think the honeymoon stage with the new coaching staff won't last long with the coaching staff if USC doesn't make the playoffs? The expectations for the season have always seemed unrealistic. Quality wins take time, of course. The first one, last time I saw, and this was like probably pre-pandemic, I saw that Joseph Lewis was playing at like a JUCO I've never heard of in uh, Los Angeles. So the last time I checked, he was playing JUCO football or some form of uh, organized football still. But that was like, I felt like, pre-pandemic like i said i don't know if you've seen a thing or heard anything no i haven't i mean he had those legal issues so right he yeah he had some stuff that he had to work through off the field before he could get back on the field and so i i've not heard anything i haven't followed up 
Yeah. And as far as the honeymoon stage, no, I don't think that'll be. I don't think not making the playoff will be because I think a lot of I think the playoff is obviously a very wildly unrealistic thing for a team that was four and eight last season. Now, it's certainly in the realm of possibility, if especially if USC runs the table. But I don't think there's going to be like a revolt if USC doesn't make the playoff. I think people, at least a rational fan, understands USC only won four games last year. And that turnaround to just going to 10 wins would be like a monumental feat. I don't think everyone's going to be pissed. I think everyone's going to be more ecstatic if they win double digit wins than be pissed that they don't make the playoffs. That makes sense. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think anybody can, even with unrealistic expectations, actually be upset or say that the honeymoon is over. I think the honeymoon is at least two seasons. And, and then you mm-hmm. get in the third season and then people again, start to look at things a little more critically and okay, two seasons, this is what you know we've done. What do we need to do to get better, to, 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 to become more dominant? And that's where you start to hear more of that. But I, I always feel like, you know, even under the best circumstances, two seasons is, is certainly kind of um, the, the honeymoon period is you're probably pretty, pretty, pretty much in the green uh, up until like, like that third year. And our last two questions, the third one is from Stevie and another one from Cappy Duarte. Uh, Cappy's question is ready to eat crow on your evaluation of Arch Manning still ranked number one by 247 and glowingly praised on the 24-7 recruiting podcast we don't know if this is sarcasm we don't know reading it now it doesn't feel like sarcasm or maybe it's a (laughs) troll I don't quite know and then the third question that plays into this a lot of us aren't too high on Arch Manning the competition he plays in high school is very low but we all seem very high on Tackett Curtis, even though they play in the same league. So I guess on Arch Manning, still number one. I mean, we are on record as as saying, you know, we don't think that he's number one, especially when we talked after that Manny uh, Isidore, Newman Isidore game that he did not look like the number one player overall. But, you know. I don't do rankings. I don't do stars. I don't do any of that stuff. So I know a lot of people are pissed about it, seeing that he's still number one. But, hey, it's not my business. We're just here to talk about it, Gerard. Yeah, pretty much. You need a soundboard clip for sarcasm. So. <laughs> right. I, I, I don't know. Again, I, 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 don't I, guess... know. I don't know how to read. I thought it was sarcasm. And then reading it right there, felt like, oh, this person is definitely rubbing it in our faces. So I don't know. They haven't listened to this podcast in their lives. If they think they're rubbing something in our faces. We talked about Arch Manning plenty. I'm just going to write it off as sarcasm. It's just hard to read sometimes. Um, but in terms of Arch Manning versus Tackett Curtis, first and foremost, I think Tackett Curtis has had a, a, a much more uh, productive year just in the standpoint that he's had – punt returns for touchdowns he's it's because he dominates that league is what he you want to see the competition yeah he's he's dominated the competition and um you know arch Manning just hasn't and you can always make the argument well he doesn't have the same guys to throw to and it's like well you're telling me nobody wants to play with arch manning the, <laughs> the, the nephew of uh, peyton manning and eli that's manning a good point. that's a good point so you know he can't recruit to get guys to play with him at the high school level. And so th- there's a lot of questions about that, but 
With Tackett Curtis, you're looking at a guy on film who jumps out at you, explodes out at you, um, has all the physical traits. And, I mean, he's dominating the way he should dominate at that level uh, against that competition. So um, I think there are less questions about him from that standpoint. You know, is it going to be a transition for him playing at that level and going to USC and expecting him from spring ball to fall camp to be able to, you know, get the speed of the game down and get the defense down to be able to play Mike linebacker? I think that's a lot. I mean, I think that's asking a lot for the opening game of the season. I think it's, you know, if it was Sam linebacker, if it was playing rush end or one of those positions, but Mike linebacker, you got to make a lot of calls and you got to do a lot. You're basically like the quarterback of the defense. So that's, that's definitely a point to be made in terms of his impact at USC in terms of how early it is. But in terms of where he's ranked right now and the fact that he's actually falling after having a really good game against Arch Manning's team, which they won, yeah, you just kind of like, you know, he's going above and beyond uh, this season just like he did last season. We obviously just haven't seen that from Arch Manning. He's kind of had a mediocre year. He's kind of got mediocre stats. And guess what? He didn't show up anywhere. He didn't do anything from a camp standpoint when, when you're talking about evaluations quarterback position you can evaluate during the offseason you can evaluate at these no contact camps you can see arm strength you can see decision making release uh even mobility to some standpoint with a linebacker it's a lot harder if if uh, Taka curtis didn't show up anywhere it's like okay what did we not get to see from him well we weren't going to see him tackle we weren't going to see him defeat blocks we weren't going to see a lot of those things it's just like running back i think linebacker running back on the two positions it's kind of hard to evaluate and put a lot of stock in what you see at a non-contact camp. But that's not true quarterback. And there's a bunch of different things and events that cater to quarterbacks. I mean, they're basically quarterback events. I mean, the Steve Clarkson quarterback event is for quarterbacks. They li- they literally are doing it just for quarterbacks. Elite 11, those are just for quarterbacks. And he skipped out on doing all of those events. So that's a, that's a little bit of an issue. That's a little bit of a problem when you're looking at this from a competitive standpoint. He clearly didn't value those things. He didn't evaluate those competitive situations. He decided, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a Manning. I've already got all my scholarship offers. You know, I've beaten these small teams doing what I've doing. I don't need to do anything else, you know. And I think that's that's a little bit of a of a problem from an intangible standpoint. Um, it's not to say that he won't end up being a good quarterback in college, but it's just when you're trying to project, I think that that's um, – that's limiting for him or it should be for him. And there's other, you know, issues. I think from an industry standpoint, the recruiting publications uh, rewarding him for not going out and competing at some of these events, I think sets a bad precedent. And I just want to add that Manny and Tackett Curtis, they have a hard time scheduling games within their division, which is two a both for both of those schools. So they actually have to play, higher division schools to to get games on their on their non-conference and such so they're beating 5a teams 4a teams they're beating those higher ranked teams and higher division teams so that's why you know they run through their schedule in 2a and you know played for multiple national championships and had multiple excuse me not uh state championships not national championships and multiple state championship appearances and state championship wins so they're just two very different programs and yeah so that's why we are higher on Tackett Curtis. Gerard, guess what? It's the end of the show. Uh, we hit three hours. Oh, wow. Three hours. <laughs> Don't act surprised. 
Well, I have to at, – at, now it's the end of the show. I do have to say because I didn't want to use excuses before the show, but I am definitely feeling this flu shot that I got. <laughs> and so if I was lacking a little bit of energy during this podcast, it's, it's because I, I really want to go to sleep and uh, just take some Tylenol right now. So, uh, But three hours, you know, hey, we, we did it. Uh, it was one of those shows where we sit coming in. There wasn't a whole lot to talk about, and there you go. We ended up talking. And I just want to leave you with this real quick. Biggest head I've ever seen. A head like an elephant. I think that's that's all that needs to be said, Gerard. That never needs to be said. <laughs> that never, ever needs to be said. <laughs> I love it so much. I love it so much. Oh, I'm going to get a bunch of hate mail on it, but I love it so much. I love it there so much. There was opportunities to use that that were better at the at the end. But I know you wanted to save it at the end. I knew you didn't want to just interject. I, it in the I couldn't find the perfect opportunity to drop that. You could I don't have know used you it about you could have probably snuck it in there with Arch Manning or something and that would have just Maybe, but I didn't really I didn't really want to use it as a uh, on a kid. I mean, I know Clay yes. Helton literally used <laughs> yeah, it on a kid, but yeah. I didn't I wanted to be better than Clay Helton. I wanted to be a rise above it. I didn't want to hey, do that. Hey, listen, do don't that. don't be a hater, Chris. You know, Georgia Southern, they actually beat James Madison last week. So, hey, the 2016 season has commenced for Clay Helton. It's a it's a banner year. Biggest head I've ever seen. Head like an elephant. Fair enough. And I think we're going to end on that that note. So I hope you're happy. I know you guys were upset we did not have a show last year. But we went three hours uh, for this, for our, our, our return, our comeback. So I am Chris. That is Gerard. And we will catch you next time on the Composite Two Star Recruits. Jeff Leopard sucks!